WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 271. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the Courtyard by Marriott Hotel in Pittsburgh, PA. And on this episode, we're going to talk about more passenger, bad passenger behavior, and uh, an incident involving a CRJ2 of uh, SkyWest livery, and more news, your feedback and the latest Plain Tales episode, The Aviators of Pittsburgh. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 271 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of the Airline Pilot Guys show. We are here in, uh, actually, I said Pittsburgh, but uh, it's uh, Coriopolis. Nope. Coriopolis, we got uh, the locals here. We uh, clarified that. And they said, you pronounce it Coriopolis. So uh, here we are at the uh, courtyard right across the street from the 9-11th airlift wing. There's a big air show here this weekend, and that's why we're here. And uh, joining me today, we have the lovely doctor. Doctor? Doctor? Physiatrist, to be exact. And we also have a skydiver, a mountain climber, a marathon runner, and a scuba diver, probably. I don't know. I didn't even ask that. No, I, I've never no? done scuba diving. Well, we'll just pretend oh, that yeah. that's what you do. Fair and enough. Dr. Stuff. Hello, Captain Jeff. How are you? It's so nice to be sitting here, you in know, person. in person. Yeah, we don't is. get to do that Although too, too we're kind of sitting at two separate well, tables. but Yeah, it's a little awkward, but that's yeah. okay. We like Nev in the middle. Yeah, he's kind of uh, yeah, playing the uh, referee here. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, thanks for uh, heading up here and joining us for this uh, wonderful event. Yeah, of course. Wouldn't miss it. Glad to be here and looking forward to a great show with y'all today. Awesome. And we also have from across the pond over here live with us in the Pittsburgh area, the Airbus Captain Extraordinaire, Captain Nick Anderson. <laughs> Is that the best you could do, Jeff? Come I thought on. he was going to say Captain notice. Al. You have to try a little. <laughs> Shall I go on then? Uh, professional photographer, uh, just an all-around great guy, Captain Nick. Hooray! Hey, let's have a big round of applause for the live much. audience. Oh, I love you all. Love you all. Yeah. I'll be here all week. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's great to be <laughs> it's great to be back, Jeff. I'm sure there'll be more about uh, our various journeys to get here. But now we're here, we're amongst friends, we're drinking beer, we're having a show. This is great. Life couldn't be better. I couldn't agree more. And also, we have to uh, introduce our technicians here. The pros, uh, let's see, Neville is uh, manning the audio soundboard, this huge uh, mixer. And, uh, you know, we guys like big equipment. I hear the girls do too. And Nev is, you should see this big equipment that Nev has over here. <laughs> uh, it's amazing. And he's manning the soundboard, Neville Bounds. Yay! Yay. And we have uh, multi-camera uh, video, and that is manned by the expert video technician, Matthew Smith. Yay! Yay. 
All right. And uh, for some reason, they didn't want microphones. They, they, they shied away from that. I don't know why. But uh, anyway, so here we are at the uh, Wings Over Pittsburgh. Now we're going to have our special uh, recording tomorrow night, um, Saturday night, and we're going to have other professional aviation podcast. Well, okay. Aviation podcasters uh, joining us as well. Yeah. Not professional. <laughs> I'm not sure any of us really get paid for doing this. And there's a good reason for that, I think. But anyway, uh, we're going to be doing a big party and meet up uh, tomorrow night. But we thought, you know, it's about time for us to do our weekly episode. Well, why not do an episode while we're here? We just uh, finished listening to the awesome Plain Talking UK podcast, co-hosted by Matt and Carlos. And Carlos is going to be our man with the roaming, the roving microphone tonight and uh, or this afternoon. And uh, anyway, so we're going to just do try to do kind of a sort of a normal show and cover, you know, do our normal format, talk a little bit about the news and cover some feedback and that sort of thing. And if you want uh, to uh, enjoy fun and frivolity and no structure whatsoever, then tomorrow night is your show. So that's all I have to say about that. All right. All right. Um, so we always start the episode. If if any of you have ever listened to the Airline Pilot Guy show, no. no? Oh, okay. So no, what we do? I don't recognize any faces. So out what there. we I do mean, is a bunch <laughs> of strange people have showed up at the hotel. We kind of catch up with each yeah. other's uh, what's going on during the week and all that kind of stuff. And uh, let's start with Doctor Steph. How uh, how's your week been going? So my week has actually well, at work. It was very busy. Um, but last weekend, I was actually on the other side of the state of Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. In Philadelphia. I'm in Pittsburgh right now. See, the problem is they named the state Pennsylvania, and then the two big cities are Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, and they all start with P, and that just gets confusing. Too much so. alliteration for yeah, Dr. Steph. Yeah, is it, yeah, exactly. Um, yes, just to be clear, currently in Pittsburgh, was in Philadelphia last weekend. The reason I was there was for the Broad Street Run. Met up with a bunch of friends from med school and did that, and that was really nice. Um, actually had a very nice, fast time. Um, really happy with the, the effort there, and it was great to see all my friends there. Um, you know, leading with my stomach, too, I managed to get all the major Philadelphia food groups, soft pretzels, cheese steaks. Uh, what else did I have while I was there? Um, crab fries. Crab fries. Can't forget the crab fries. Crab fries. Yes. Chickies and Pete's. Oh. Um, Micah had a good suggestion for a restaurant that I need to get to in the future, which I was not aware of. So it's next on the list at Ralph's. Yep. Italian, I hear. So we'll definitely plan on doing that. But yeah, it's been a good week. Um, glad to be up here in Pittsburgh. Get my That's right. Pennsylvania town names correct. And um, really looking forward to the air show this weekend and catching up with everyone that's here. Great. And Captain Nick, was your journey over from uh, the UK to Coriopolis uh, a nice, easy one, relaxing? Did that go around? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely, Jeff. It was a, a pleasure uh, to sit in uh, upper class in Acme Red after a nice visit to the lounge where I had some breakfast, early start, but uh, then cruised our way across the Atlantic, landed in uh, lovely Atlanta, and then, unfortunately, we were faced with the task of moving on to Pittsburgh with uh, Acme. Uh, and now, I always had a very high opinion of Acme. But uh, after I'd been thrown off two flights, well, actually, I didn't even get as far as being thrown off. I didn't even get onto the airplane. They obviously took one look at me and went, no, we're not having a one. I began to wonder if I was ever going to get here. But, you know, lucky, uh, lucky old me, they obviously... Uh, 
didn't work it out when I pulled my cap down across my face and uh, just strolled on the airplane. They let me on the third time. So a bit of a late arrival, but so glad to be here. Well, you didn't make the mistake of mentioning my name, did you? That might be part of the problem. You work for Acme? Oh, of course you do. Yes, yes. you do. You know, I forgot about that. <laughs> no, I've had a great week. Um, I had a couple of interesting things happen. I, uh, well, you got contacted by uh, a, a journalist, Kristen Lee a Painter, who uh, is writing an article for uh, the Conte Nast uh, magazine. And uh, you obviously cold-shouldered her and passed her on to me. So uh, that was uh, fine. I, so we did an interview, and uh, apparently on the basis of that, she'll be writing an article, which you may uh, subsequently find, uh, about uh, what airline pilots do in the cruise. It was a pretty short interview. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't tell her really what pilots do. I was going to say, <laughs> How open were you about all that? <laughs> There's a reason why I sent her your way. No, because she was looking for long-haul pilots. That's very true, yeah. And I said, well, you know, I it's been a while. I have flown long haul, but it's been quite some time, and things probably have changed. And so I know the just the guy to interview, Captain Nick. So. Well, you know how I can blather on. So uh, we, we actually oh. chatted for over an hour. So I don't know how I managed to string that out. I mean, that's, the, that's longer than you actually spend on some flights, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it is. And uh, in addition, I, uh, I saw a, a request from uh, the Pilot magazine in the UK. Um, there, there's, uh, the editor is uh, Philip Whiteman. Pilot magazine is quite a well-known uh, magazine. Uh, uh, and I don't know how far around the world it goes, but certainly in the UK. And he was looking for, uh, I learned about flying from that stories. So huh. recalling one of my plain tales, uh, I rewrote it and submitted it. And he was delighted with that. He's going to put it in his June um, publication. And I did mention that I was coming here and I could do, take some pictures and perhaps write up a little review of uh, Wings Over Pittsburgh, and he said he'd love to see that. And then I thought, well, perhaps some of my old plain tales could be uh, submitted, and he said he'd like to see those as well. So you never know, perhaps uh, uh, we'll get a bit of a, uh, um, a regular appearance there. I certainly made sure that uh, I included the Airline Pilot Guy show in my text so that hopefully we'll pick up a few listeners from that. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Well-deserved. And look for a book in the future. <laughs> Actually, that might be a good idea. Compile all those plain tales and publish ah, a book. You know, I never thought of that. And I could add author to your list of accomplishments. <laughs> um, or Jeff maybe not. Tack himself in there as editor. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there you go. Hey, you know, last week uh, I did the uh, APG by myself, uh, old school, I called it, edition solo. It was, uh, it was kind of fun, actually. It's been a while since I've done that. A little weird, but uh, I really do enjoy my You're a little weird. Jeff. Yeah, I know. I'm more than a little weird. Uh, but I, I was listening to the show because I uh, sometimes, and podcasters out here, you'll vouch for this. Sometimes you do a show, especially those of us who edit the show and upload them and are kind of responsible for all that. Sometimes you put it out there and then all of a sudden there's like a 30-minute segment of silence. And so, you know, we always fear that something like that's going to happen. So I was listening to the show after I published it. And then I realized how many mistakes that I made. And uh, so let's see. The first one, I, I think I said uh, it was April 5th. And, you know, Cinco de Mayo is not April 5th. It's May 5th. 
so I got that wrong. And then I also said the 100 LL, which is the fuel that uh, general aviation airplanes, most of them use. I, I said 100 low level. It's low levels of lead, but it's actually low lead, I think, technically. So I kind of messed that one up. And then the other thing that I uh, kind of screwed up was I kept pr mispronouncing uh, Captain Nick's favorite layover destination. And I kept saying Legos, like the things that you play with, little toys. No, but it's let – me, let me see if I can do this right. Lagos? Lagos. No. La no. Lagos. Lagos. It's actually Lagos. You were saying Lagos. And okay. I wouldn't mind going to Lagos. I still don't know what that is, but – Legos. It's Lagos. 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 L A Y. Lay. I just, I'll pronounce, I'll, uh, I'll record you saying it, and then every time I need to say it, I'll just play the recording okay. as a sound clip. Lagos. That's all right. I couldn't remember what town I was in just last weekend, so well, you're in good company okay. here. And I'm sure those are just a, a few mistakes that I made from the last show. I'm sure there are more, but I just wanted to, uh, you know, uh, be honest about it and, uh, you know, make sure that people listening understand that uh, I understand that I'm wrong. And, uh, I, I don't need just my wife to tell me that. I could do that myself. Uh, let's see. We are here. We're wearing, uh, some of us are wearing um, airline pilot guy gear. If you want to uh, get some good uh, merchandise from either Redbubble or Teespring, Captain Nick is um, proudly wearing a, an Acme shirt. It's uh, personalized with his name. So he's probably the only one that will buy that. Uh, Airplane Geeks uh, is not available on our APG <laughs> store, but Brian is proudly wearing his shirt, and it's a good-looking shirt, by the way. And uh, so anyway, uh, check out the APG store by heading over to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website and clicking on APG store. And let's see. That's all I can think of for now. We should probably move on to the coffee fund. What do you think? Let's I think it. so. Here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. No, I love the Java Java and it loves me. I don't know if you can hear everybody coffee singing in the audience. Let's turn the Java microphone around. Me. Cup, a cup, a cup, cup, cup. <laughs> okay, that's enough. All right. <laughs> Whoops, Mr. Moto, I'm a coffee pot. All right. While they're singing in the background, let me tell you about the coffee fund. That's your way to contribute to the Airline Pilot Guy show. And uh, if you want to do so, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And since the last show, we've had several people. I think they wanted to help out actually the beer fund and other such things that we're consuming here at the uh, hotel in uh, Pittsburgh. And let's see, I'd like to call out, shout out to David Abbey. He sent in a contribution and he said, you specifically use this for beer. Uh, okay, we'll do that. And uh, so thank you, David, for that. Uh, Jeff Muller, yeah, here's, a, here's a toast to David. Yay. Yay, David. Cheers. And let's see, Jeff Muller uh, sent in his recurrent uh, contribution via the PayPal Classic Fund. Andrew Wilson, Mark Rodia, Victor Parito de Berm. How would I do with that one? That okay? I don't know. Sounds and, good. of course, Nico Rieger uh, from Germany. And so thank you all of you for contributing to the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And we also have some new patrons to the show. 
Uh, that's uh, via Patreon.com, where people can contribute a certain amount of money per episode. And we have three new patrons. Rob Simmons, Ben Richards, and Luis Caceres. I have no idea. I think that was close. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I don't speak that language, but I think that uh, I got kind of close there. So anyway, again, if you want to contribute and you have the uh, ability to do so, please check out the coffee fund, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And now it's time for the news. Uh-oh. Bad boys. And girls. <laughs> yeah, we're going to start with one of so many articles out there involving passengers and air crews not exhibiting their best behaviors. And, of course, uh, this latest one, well, at least not the latest one, but the last one that I have in our news folder, is... The uh, actually it didn't even happen on an airplane. It happened in the airport. Yeah, it happened in the terminal. Yeah. So I think the story, the headline shouldn't be, you know, Spirit Airlines, air crews, not flying airplanes. It should be people not acting like adults. Pretty much. That would sum it up a little bit better. Yeah. I'm sure many of you saw the video of this uh, where I guess Spirit uh, pilots and the management are having a, well, they're negotiating. And That's a nice way to put it. They're taking some job actions. And uh, we're not going to get into, you know, how we feel about all that kind of thing. But uh, apparently Spirit had to cancel uh, several flights. And some of the passengers at Fort Lauderdale uh, were not very happy. And uh, some had actually boarded the airplane. And then they, the pi I guess the pilots didn't show up. <laughs> they decided <laughs> that, uh, well, we can't fly this flight, so get off the airplane, please. And they had to go to the ticket counter to get their refunds. And apparently... Uh, they, uh, I think they canceled something like 81 flights on Sunday. Oh, it that's was all. a lot of flights. That, that's probably all the flights that Spirit has on yeah, Sunday. Yeah, it's probably close. Wow. So, so they, they weren't flying a lot of planes. So there were a lot of people kind of stuck who were expecting to go from point And a these to were point unhappy people. Very unhappy people. And they were basically rioting yeah. in the uh, ticket in counter Lauderdale. area in Fort, Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. yeah. That's just, uh, what do you say about this? I mean, you know, we've seen so much of this. I mean, I think the latest one I saw that they're playing on the social media and TV is the uh, Southwest Airlines, uh, two passengers, you know, fisticuffs, uh, just, you know, mm -hmm. beating the snot out of each other. Um, I don't know. Uh, what, we, you know, we talk about this almost every week now. That's kind of a recurring theme. Um, what do we do about it? I don't know. Let's, let's start behaving like civilized people. How about? Yeah, I think that. So we'll put a plea out there. You know, yes. if you're traveling, if you're in the airport, for the kids, be nice to each other. It's not that hard. You might enjoy your time a little bit more. You might not end up in jail. <laughs> Bonus. Yes. Mind you, I can understand the problem, Jeff, because, I mean, you, the stress of going through an airport and going and, you know, being subjected to queues and hassle and security and then finally, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, your people just escalate. 
and it happens very quickly and it takes a, a really determined and capable staff and I'm not quite sure how many sort of staff spirit can afford to have standing around sorting these problems out but uh, you really people who are going to organize things and fix things and make it better uh, for the uh, passengers uh, otherwise you're going to have a lot of problems and uh, if if spirit knew there was going to be a hassle and they still let people board aircraft which they suspected were going to be cancelled then you know more full them yeah that is true good point so it was all spirit's fault not not the passengers no i guess everybody shares a little bit, bit of blame there all right moving on to this incident from the aviation herald skywest crj 200 at chicago on the first of may they had uh, cargo smoke indication they were climbing out of chicago when the crew donned their oxygen masks stopped the climb at six thousand feet reporting cargo smoke and diverted to chicago to page airport for a safe landing about 10 minutes after departure the crew requested to turn into the wind after landing then advised they had been discharging fire agent into the cargo bay, requested fire services to inspect the cargo bay. Following emergency services reported not seeing any smoke, the aircraft continued to the terminal. Passengers disembarked normally via stairs. Firefighters subsequently reported that they could smell smoke. Uh, they said almost immediately after becoming airborne, haze occurred in the cabin. Flight attendant initially attempted to calm them down, advising it was only mist. <laughs> However, there was also a clear smell of smoke. Shortly thereafter, the passengers noticed that the aircraft was maneuvering to land. And uh, so I, I think this crew did a really nice job. Some people uh, were complaining, passengers, that, that they landed at DuPage and not back at Chicago O'Hare because that was kind of an inconvenience for them. I don't think they realize how... <laughs> How important it is to get an airplane on the ground. You know, smoke in the aircraft, you probably want to be on the ground as quick as possible. Whatever is the nearest airport is where you're going. Yeah, so. they did a great job. Yeah. They got it on the ground and everybody's still alive. And great thinking by the pilot to uh, turn into the wind, you know, to make sure that the smoke was trailing away from the airplane. These are, these are the kind of things that we have to think about when we're uh, in an emergency situation like this. Yeah, you're quite right, Jeff. Cargo fires have uh, caused some appalling uh, accidents in the past that have resulted in huge losses of life. So uh, anyone who thinks that it's not a good idea to land at the nearest suitable airfield is, I'm afraid, uh, fooling themselves. Right. Well, in the news, I've been waiting for you to, I think you were, you're the one that threw it in there, if you want to talk about that. I don't see that. Oh, you don't see, see it? That. Okay. Well, we're not going to talk about it then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think then what that means is we should move on to... Yes. All right, we'll do that again. Captain, incoming message. All right, we'll do that again. If you put it there, I'll happily talk about it. Was that the one where Airbus have... Still in my folder. Okay. Well, give me your folder. There's a lot of pointing going on over there. Yeah, I don't know. I must be doing something wrong. Well, Jeff, this, you see, perhaps a senior moment for Jeff. Jeff had a senior moment. I'm not you doing anything what? wrong. The, I've got the, a yeah, doctor, I've got a prescription for that actually. Yeah, the doctor might have something for Jeff for yeah. his senior okay. moment. So, uh, oh, I'm stuck in my chair. Here. Jesting is a very quiet. What? The uh, the the sound clips. Yeah, that was. So we have these. These are the uh, senior moment mints. 
for Captain Jeff for his. <laughs> I should have presented them earlier when he was doing his error uh, announcements for that. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Is such a thoughtful gift. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'll keep these uh, on me. I'll keep these on me. Show them to the camera. Should I look in the camera? No, oh. show them. It's the oh, camera. thank you. Okay. I don't, take... <laughs> I don't do this thing very much. Here you go. The senior moment pills. <laughs> or mints. Thank you. Uh, I'll no. tell you where those really came from later on. But that's fine. Okay. <laughs> so let's move on through. Let's push through my senior moment and do your feedback. <laughs> yeah. Captain, incoming message. Good enough. <laughs> okay. Let's get to the best part of the show, which, of course, we always say is your feedback. Uh, let's see. You know, we're here at a military air show for the most part. And I've been flying with a lot of people. In fact, I flew the last copilot I flew with, a um, new guy, uh, flies for the, uh, what do they call the uh, squadron that uh, does the... Um, is it not Avengers? Uh, it's the uh, what do they call the the? Help me out. Give somebody. him some more senior moment. Huh? Yeah, have a mint. Have a oh, mint. Okay. It'll come to you. <laughs> let me let me open up my senior moment mints. Hey, while we've got a. It starts with an A, Airplane? and they fly these F fives against uh, other. Aggressors. Thank you, aggressors. Ding ding ding, we have a winner. Winner, winner, chicken, uh, Air Force. Aggressors. Aggressors, thank you. I was looking for you. I just I didn't know you were sitting way back there. I thought you were sitting up here. Okay, anyway, he is a, an aggressor pilot uh, based in, uh, hang on, let me take my mint. <laughs> nope, Key West. Oh, shoot, you're right. It was Navy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Have they, another mint. They both, they both <laughs> I guess I need to take age. some more of these mints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, now I've, I've forgotten exactly why I was even talking about <laughs> Anyway, this whole thing I was going to talk about the Air Force, but it's all military pilots here in the in the country. We're, we're having a – we talk about the pilot shortage on our show a lot. Um, we think we're having a problem in the civilian world with um, pilot shortage. The military is really, really hurting. And I've flown with a bunch of military people recently, and they said, yeah, you, you're not going to believe how how bad things are in the military, the Air Force and Navy, et cetera. And so uh, we thought that we'd throw an article in here about um, this uh, critical pilot shortage due to the uh, uh, private commercial airlines hiring. And then also kind of associated with this uh, is this article, which I think is um, – kind of applies to the situation um uh, air force pilots to allow i mean air force to allow average looking uncool people to become fighter pilots <laughs> and uh we have a you'll, you'll have to look at the uh, pictures uh from the article in the show notes uh, this is out of Langley Air Force Base, Virginia due to manning cuts and years of major airliners paying higher wages for sweet abs sweet abs the U.S. Air Force Air Combat Command may begin allowing normal people to become fighter pilots as early as 2020, sources report. They say that Air Force General David L. Goldfein addressed a crowd of shirtless pilots at a post-volleyball match early last week, informing them, informing them that due to manning cuts in previous years, some pilots were forced to finish early and leave many units placid. 
Air Force policy requires <laughs> that each flying squadron maintain enough pilots to publish four consecutive 12-month calendars without seeing the same half-naked pilot more than once. Uh, they, that's what he said to the glistening aviators. We may be forced to recruit back some talent, which we know will be difficult due to their hectic modeling schedules. Anyway, it goes on to talk about the... Um, you know the fact that they're they're having to you know actually lower the bar quite a bit in allowing uncool people or average-looking people to uh, be allowed to fly as fighter pilots. Uh, the last uh, uh, paragraph sums it up: as long as they oil up beforehand and don't skip leg day, they shouldn't have any issues becoming proud and successful aviators," said Larry Knight, a critic of the Air Force's exclusion of uncool people like him, a policy that forced him to become a loser Army helicopter pilot instead. <laughs> wow. I just wanted to say I have nothing personally against Army helicopter pilots or any other branch of the service. So, no, I have nothing against loser helicopter pilots either. Uh, all right, so thought that was kind of funny. We'll put the uh, links to that in the show notes. I thought this was interesting, and I've been kind of holding off on this uh, piece of uh, feedback until Nick was here to comment on it. And uh, let's see, this is from Jan. Let me first introduce myself. My name is Jan. I live near Munich Airport in Germany. While I was a student, uh, I was an active glider pilot and later on also an instructor in our students' glider club. Since, uh, since then, I have a job. Instead of flying the smaller planes myself, I sit quite often in the bigger ones as a passenger. I listened to your show since about a half a year now, and this is my first feedback question I can send in. It's about the Airbus's Captain Nick is driving. It's well known that an A340 only takes off and climbs because the earth bends down below it. <laughs> hmm. I didn't say that. He did. Uh, but I really would like to hear Nick's thoughts about the Air France A340 300 incident in Bogota, as they obviously had a big issue with their takeoff performance. And then he gives us uh, points us to the Aviation Herald article. And so now we're all opening it up on our computers. Stand by. It's Standing by. Article. Standing by. Because I forgot to include it in the uh, notes. You like a bit of editing. Well, I'm there. What's wrong with you, Lon? Hmm? You like a bit of editing. Do you want to read yes. it? Should I read it? Please do, Steph. Sure. So this was an incident, France A340-300 at Bogota, March 11th, 2017, abnormally long takeoff run. So an Air France Airbus A340 uh, performing a flight from Bogota to Charles de Gaulle with 275 people, blah, 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 departed Bogota's runway 13 right, 13 right, and continued to Paris for a safe landing without further incident. So that runway is... 3,800 meters, 12,470 feet long, at an elevation of 8,360 feet above sea level. So, on April 25th, the BEA reported that the aircraft needed an abnormally long takeoff run. The occurrence was rated a serious incident and is being investigated uh, by the BEA, having been delegated uh, the investigation by Colombia's GRIAA. Uh, according to preliminary information, the aircraft crossed the runway and at about five feet above ground instead of 35 feet above ground level. The airline reported a similar occurrence also happened on April 4th to the same aircraft. As an immediate safety action, the airline reduced the maximum takeoff weight permitted for Bogota by five to eight tons, uh, by five to eight tons total, either less cargo or less fuel, perhaps requiring a fuel stop at Guadalupe as suitable. It is considered 
is being considered to use the Boeing 787 in the future. Should the A340-300 available performance turn out as the cause? Captain Nick. That's, a, that's a great idea. But I just like... <laughs> well, I, I, I could sit here and try and defend the A340-300, but we all know that the 300 had uh, CFM engines, uh, the CFM-56, and for its takeoff weight at about 250 tons, they weren't huge engines. So, And I flew that aircraft for quite a while, and uh, we were all aware that it had uh, um, didn't have an excess of power in the takeoff regime. What would you call those engines? Hair dryers or something? Yeah, that's right. I'm sure CFM would be very impressed. It's like <laughs> having four APUs, uh, one of your tail made five. Um, so it, it wasn't brilliant. Um, but having said that, there are very few flying now. Um, now, the, does it actually matter what airplane and what engines you've got? If you calculate your performance right, it'll get airborne. Uh, and if, you, uh, if you're carrying too much weight, you take it off. Um, take the weight off, that is, not the aircraft. So um, if uh, the airline involved took... Uh, they made the mistake of putting too much weight in for the performance of the aircraft involved, considering this was quite a high uh, elevation. I mean, that's uh, over 8,000 feet, pretty high for uh, any aircraft to operate. Um, then it's just a mistake in uh, overloading the aircraft and not actually a, a factor of what the aircraft type is. You can overload any airplane and it'll, have, it'll struggle to get off any runway. Um, so, t for me, this is uh, this was an incident which really um, involved uh, a, a performance issue, not an aircraft type. Having said that, I'm not going to try and defend the 340-300. I remember getting out of Hong Kong in that Jeff um, one uh, trip, uh, and we weren't using them out of hot uh, countries very much. Uh, but uh, we got out of Hong Kong. It was a really hot day uh, with a low trop which meant that we were going to have quite high temperatures all the way up the climb. And we were only trying to get up to, uh, which was metric altitude. So it would have been the equivalent of about 49,000, just over 49, sorry, 29,000 feet. And um, it took me nearly an hour to climb the aircraft up to the cruise altitude. When you think about it, uh, you know, climbing up to less than 30,000 feet would normally take you... 15, 20 minutes. So as an example, I had an hour-long flight here today, and I know we were up close to or above that altitude. There you go. You know, for Absolutely. most of the flight. So because it was so warm and we were pretty damn heavy, it was just taking us forever to get up there and establish uh, in the cruise. Now, um, the aircraft, we don't have that aircraft in Acme Red anymore. Uh, we've uh, sent them all on to other airlines. Uh, and uh, we fly the 34600, which is a different beast completely. I mean, the uh, payout to weight ratio of the 34600 is very impressive. And when we first climbed into it, uh, we went, whoa, this is just great. You know, this is uh, as it should have been when uh, the 340 was first brought into service. Uh, so we carry an extra nearly 100 tons, or in fact, more than 100 tons extra, and we get up to there in a much more normal uh, climb rate. But uh, those early... 34300s were not good performance, but that doesn't excuse uh, it being overloaded at, uh, at Bogota and uh, getting off the runway uh, at uh, um, five feet above the ground. Well, let's not forget that uh, um, I thought it was a fence height of 30 feet, 
Al, is that right? On a dry day and 15 on a wet day, on a wet figures? But uh, <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so um, they're actually only 10 feet below the uh, requirement. So that's actually not huge because you think about it on a normal day on a wet runway, you're only required to be 15 feet above the ground when you uh, get to the end of the runway. Go ahead, Al. Yeah, it was just a, a consideration I had, and I've just had to nip out, so you might have covered this in my absence. But uh, as this is a, an occurrence that's happened more than once out of Bogota, um, one consideration would have been actually the weight on the cargo manifest versus the actual weight on board the aircraft. Because I'm pretty certain that Air France use electronic takeoff performance. Um, so it's not uncommon um, under that basis to have a, a stop margin of zero feet. So in other words, you've, you've literally are at maximum performance so if the cargo happens to be significantly heavier than what's on the manifest and therefore the performance that's calculated, which, you know, without making, you know, any sweeping statements may well prove to be the case. I mean, if someone's, you know, receiving a little bit of under-the-counter, you know, manipulation oh, to yeah, get extra happen. cargo on the yeah, aircraft, um, then, you know, that might well explain why the performance of the aircraft hasn't actually lived up to what it should have done. Yeah. Yeah, so whilst I appreciate the joke of uh, you know the Earth's curvature, it's not the first aircraft type it's uh, been applied to. We used to, in the Air Force, used to say the Jaguar only got airborne uh, because it, uh, the Earth curved away, and that uh, when one engine failed, the other one was there to take it to the scene of the crash. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I really don't think uh, he appreciated it. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, it was, it was a great question. Thanks very much uh, for bringing it on board. Yes, thank you, Jan, for your feedback. Now, I'd like to uh, play some special feedback from somebody, submitted by somebody here that is with us live in the audience. Her name, Barbara, yeah, Barbara mm. Parrish, and uh, it's, a, it's a great story. So let's take a listen. Jeff and everyone on the APG crew. It's Barbara here. I wanted to share with you and the listeners my personal family story that would kind of fit into Captain Nick's Plain Tales category. Although this story at its heart is a sad and tragic one, it is also very interesting and it has taken my mother and I years to piece together. This story is also one that remains a mystery, and I often ask myself, have I found all there is to know? I am not sure, but I will provide photos and information in the show notes. Before I begin, I would like to start by saying this feedback is dedicated to my maternal grandfather, my mother's father, Zdenek Schwarz, and who is the focus of this story. This precious life we have can be long and blessed, or can be taken from us in the blink of an eye. My two grandfathers' lives were no exception to this rule, and, al and although this true story is about my maternal grandfather, Stenek, I wanted to first put this story into perspective by briefly mentioning my paternal grandfather, my father's father, Grandad Fred Parrish, and how different the lives were to turn out. 
My father's father, Grandad Fred Parrish, was from south-east London. A true and proud Englishman was my grandfather Fred, as I remember him. He was the youngest sergeant major in the British Army during World War II, and he was lucky in that his time during the war was spent training up the British Army and other men to fight. He also trained the famous Czech resistance fighters who came to Britain during the war to learn how to fight their Nazi occupiers. Little did Grandad Fred know, at that time, just how much Czechoslovakia, as it was then named, was to become intertwined with him and our family during the war and in the years to come. Eventually, my English granddad Fred's luck ran out and the time came for him to fight on the battlefields of Europe. And in June 1944, he set sail from England with the D-Day invasion fleets to France. Before he left, he said goodbye to his new wife, my grandmother Mary, and their newly born child, my father, not knowing if he would ever see them again. My other grandfather, Randad Zdenik Schwarz, my mother's father, who is the focus of this story, was a young unmarried man when the Nazis invaded his homeland of Czechoslovakia. After Nazi investigations, my family were deemed to be without any Jewish blood. But my grandfather, like so many Czech men, were forced into slave labour to work in the Nazi weapons factories. He hated it and eventually, after a long time, managed to escape and he fled to the Czech mountains and there he hid until the end of the war, knowing that if he were captured, he could face execution. Victory and peace came in 1945 and thankfully both of my grandfathers survived the war. English Grandad Fred returned to London to my grandmother and baby son, and Grandad Zdenek returned to his home city of Prague, met and married his new love and wife, Jan Miller, and in 1948 my mother was born. But the storm clouds of tragedy were looming once more on the horizon for Grandad Zdenek, including the dark days of Russian communist rule over Czechoslovakia. For a time, Grandad Stenek's life continued to thrive, and after the war, he became a professional ice hockey player, becoming a member of the Czech national team. And it was Grandad Stenek's Czech team who taught the Russians how to play competitive ice hockey to Olympic standards. Then one day, the English ice hockey teams. Once, once again, here is where these two countries strangely collide in my family's history, invited the Czech national team to take part in a couple of exhibition games in England. The year was 1948. My mother was only 10 months old. The Czech team accepted the invitation and in November 1948, the Czech team flew from Prague to Paris. Le Bourget Airport, and from there 
would get connecting flights to London. When they arrived safely at Le Bourget, Paris, a fateful decision was made. They decided to split the ice hockey team onto two different flights and my granddad was to fly in the second plane, a Beechcraft model, 18, twin beach. There were six team members on board and two pilots. The airline was Mercure, a small air taxi charter company, and it is believed the French owner of the airline was one of the pilots who flew the plane and who was also a pilot war hero during World War II. Weather reports for the English Channel was not good, with heavy fog and apparently there was a discussion pre-flight about the baggage being heavy. The date was the 8th of November, 1948. The first plane took off and landed in London, where the team of eight waited for the rest to arrive. They waited and waited and waited, but decided to carry on, and they began a match at Wembley without their teammates. The English team showed great sportsmanship after half-time and decided to play with only eight men too. But their teammates never arrived, for the plane on which my grandfather was flying just simply vanished from radar without a trace. Some reports say over the English Channel, off Dieppe, France. There was no wreckage ever found and to this day no one knows what happened to that plane and all on board. There is one intriguing rumour that one of the pilot's body was found the next year in 1949 floating in the English Channel. But this terrible accident was not the end of the story for the loss of the plane was to have far-reaching tragic consequences for more than just the people on board that lost aircraft. The Czech ice hockey players returned home, but on return home, they fell under immediate suspicion by the communist authorities, particularly the ice hockey players that were high profile or considered the real stars of the team. The secret police interrogated them and many of the team were taken from their families, arrested by the communist authorities and accused of plotting to defect to the West. This, the communist claimed, is what happened to the lost plane and team members. The plane hadn't crashed, but had defected to the West. They had staged their own deaths and were living abroad. Accusations lasted for years and virtually all the players were sentenced to hard labour, some for 10 to 15 years. As punishment, some of the team were sent to the uranium mines, and one particular player suffered with cancer as a result, and was sent home to die. One of the widows was to be denied having any paid work or job, even though she had a daughter to support. My mother was only a small baby when her father's plane disappeared. The families were not allowed to have any memorial to the lost on the plane and no insurance was paid to the family for years because no wreckage had been found. And when eventually the payment was allowed, 
the communists took much of the insurance money themselves. Eventually, in the years to come, the communist authorities changed their minds and recognised and accepted the French official air accident investigation reports that it was a tragic air crash. Eventually, a memorial was allowed and the lost team, who were posthumously given a prestigious award called Masters of Sport. But it was too little too late for the families of those who had suffered persecution and for the player who lost his life from uranium poisoning. So where do I believe my granddad went down? Not far from my homeland, I believe. The accepted but not proved theory between my mum and I is that the plane crashed into the English Channel and on the few occasions I have looked out to sea over the White Cliffs of Dover and I know Captain Jeff has flown over the White Cliffs of Dover I have a strong feeling that's where the plane is. That would explain why no wreckage was found in France or England. Was the weather the cause? Reports at the time said that the weather conditions in the English Channel was not good, very foggy. But who knows why? I have never seen the official investigation report and would love to do so. If I had all the money in the world, I would hire a salvage team to scour the seabed. But the English Channel is littered with wrecks. Every time I fly over it or cross on a ferry, I think about Grandad Stenek, the granddad I never knew and whom my mother never knew as a father and who died aged only 29. Just like the families of the victims of Malaysian Airlines Flight MH370, it must be terrible to never have closure. My grandmother never really got over the loss of her young husband. Despite being widowed in her early 20s, my grandmother never married again and has remained a widow all her life. She is 90 years old. Two years ago I went to visit her in Australia, where she has lived for many years. To this day she still doesn't really talk about it, but my grandmother still holds a candle to my granddad, surrounded by photos of him in his ice hockey days. And I will provide some of those photos in the show notes and some information. My English grandad Fred, unlike my grandad Stenek, lived a much fuller life. He saw his child grow up and he would eventually marry a Czech lady from Prague, my mother. He had a fantastic full career as a policeman and detective in Scotland Yard and saw his grandchildren grow. How different lives can be. So this is dedicated to the memory of my grandad Stenek, his ice hockey teammates whom I shall list in the show notes, and all the souls lost on that flight to London. But also, this is dedicated to the innocent other half of the team, for whom many suffered terribly as a consequence of political evil because of the tragic loss of a plane. If there is anyone out there who can bring me more information on the crash, it would be very much appreciated. And please forward it to Captain Jeff and he can send it on to me. Information will be included with the photos. So thank you, Captain Jeff, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you and the APG crew 
and everyone at Pittsburgh. What an amazing story. Thank you, Barbara, for doing that. It was such a wonderful and and uh, melancholy story. But, uh, oh, wait, we need to get a microphone on, Miss Barbara. Thank you, Captain Jeff, for telling that story. It means a lot to me and my mum. My mum was quite moved when she heard the recording. So thank you. It means quite a lot. I just want to add that, um, you know, when... You never find your relative that's gone missing. There's always that little bit of doubt. And my grandmother, when she was quite old, she visited Canada. And she went to the museum there that's dedicated to, dedicated to ice hockey. Just to see if she could find his name somewhere on a list or anywhere that would indicate maybe he had defected, but she never found anything. So there's always that little bit of doubt but um, we believe that the plane did crash. Um, but thank you. Thank you for Well, it'd be, it would be wonderful to have that kind of closure, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the victims of the families of uh, MH370. And uh, just say as well in the chat room, everyone in the chat room absolutely loved that story, Barbara. So well done. Yeah. Yeah. An amazing multifaceted story, Barbara. You joined so many areas together. Uh, you must have taken quite a lot of time to research that. Uh, I know it's probably all in your family history, but it does take a lot of work. It's beautifully told. Thank you very much. That was a, that was great. Um, well, moving on, I think this is a, something the doctor might be able to help with. Uh, this is uh, Alex Stroud. He says, Alex Stroud here. I feel like I'm almost harassing you. Yes, Alex, if you're listening. <laughs> Stop. You're harassing me. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, sorry for that, but I had one more question. I'm currently taking, and only, you heard him, one more question. This is it, one Alex. More. That's yep, all. You're cut off after this. Yep. So. I'm currently taking sertraline. Sertraline. An antidepressant as a result of a stay in the mental health unit in my hometown hospital. I was just wondering if this would affect my ability to get a pilot's license, private or commercial, and would it stop an airline from considering me? I'm happy to, for you to talk about this on the show, as some people in similar situations might find this helpful, but not have enough confidence to ask themselves. Thanks, or ask themselves. Thanks for your patience, and I love the show. Good flying, Alex Stroud. Now, if you remember, Alex, I believe, is in Australia, Australia and I think he's 19 years old, yes. and he wants to become a commercial airline pilot, and I don't know. I mean, first of all, I'd like to say, Alex, it's very brave of you to... You know, to, to mention or even ask this type of question because, you know, a lot of people are concerned about mental health and what, you know, people might think of you mm -hmm. if you had uh, some, you know. Sure. So, first of all, I'll start off by saying that sertraline, commonly known here in the U.S. as Zoloft, is a very, very common antidepressant. It falls in the SSRI category. Those are very commonly prescribed class of medications for people with anxiety and depression. And we see it all the time. It causes headache for me because some of the pain relievers that I like to prescribe don't interact well with sertraline and other SSRIs. So I, I do see people on it very commonly. So you're certainly not alone there in taking that medication. So it's a really good question. Um, I don't have the information for Australia, but I can tell you what the FAA here or 
uh, here in the U.S. says about it. And basically, it's a case-by-case basis. So it's not something that your regular um, uh, aviation medical examiner would be able to sign you off on necessarily. They would need more information, and they would probably dig pretty deep into your medical history there. Um, But it says basically that they can consider you for a special issuance or special consideration. And then there's a couple different... um, uh, uh, basically conditions that they would consider. So if it was being prescribed for certain diagnoses, there's they list several different ones here. Um, or if you've been clinically stable on it for a very significant amount of time and they can document all of that. Um, you know, if it's just a single medication that you're using, if you don't have any other, um, you know, you haven't expressed any desires to harm yourself, harm other people. Those are big things that they're looking for. But again, it's a case by case basis. So they're really going to take a lot of different things into consideration and, and take a look at that. So um, that's what the FAA says here about surgery. Stephen, well, Ivy in our audience has something to say. I, I do. Um, I actually uh, used to be on Zoloft. Um, and I actually had the clump of it before I could get my medical license um, for my third class. Um, they gave me two options. I could either um, go through the approval process, which could take up to a year, or you could elect to come off of it yourself and then wait to go back to the medical doctor and see if you could, um, you know, just pass a little check on stuff. Six months? Or six? It, it was a certain amount of time that you had to be off At the, the time program. that that was going on, um, I'd only been on it for about a year. So it was, they said, you know, go back, look at your medical records. I had the from, from a couple of different doctors and they you know evaluated and said yeah if you just elect to come off of it we can give you your medical and go from there but um you know if you do get it it's an extremely long process i know a couple other guys that are on it and you know they elected just not to say anything about it and just kind of go with it which you know that's not really a smart thing to do especially if you're going to consider being a commercial airline pilot but Right. Just was going to throw that out there for him. You know, I know the rules are different in yeah. Australia, but, you know. Yeah, you know, I'd have to really kind of dig deep and I'll, I'll probably go ahead and do that to, you know, just to make sure I have the correct information for Australia before I send that off. But I might send him an email directly once I find some more information about it. But, yeah, like Stephen was saying, you know, there's it's a case by case basis here. If you elect not to come off of it, it can be a very long time. Certainly, I've always been pretty um vocal about being honest about your medical conditions because if you're being treated for something or getting medications, there's a way that it can be found out and, you know, it's better to be honest and be upfront about it and, and deal with it from there than the other way around in this case. So, Stephen, is, uh, I hope you don't mind me asking you this and p- feel free to uh, not, not answer, but what situation put you uh, into the condition that where you had to take that medication. Yeah, so um, some of you might know, um, I've worked, I work in the uh, power industry, um, do project controls for them, and I worked in Indiana for about two years. Um, and I moved there, I didn't know anybody, I just stopped being a flight attendant and I was on my own. And um, not having family there and everything, um, just triggered some anxiety for a couple different reasons and everything. And um, I actually went on it for a year and didn't have any medication and then um, I finally went to the doctor and they said, yeah, you have anxiety and some depression and everything. And um, I stayed on it up until about another year later till I wanted to go be a pilot. And, you know, the doctor was like, um, you know, you, you really don't need it just because my, my lifestyle had adjusted to that. You know, I was closer to the home. I was in, living in Birmingham at the time. And just my lifestyle had changed and where I really didn't need it anymore. Um, 
So, I mean, you know, it, people that are on, I mean, you know, I, there's people out there that are, oh, he, mental illness, you don't want to associate with them. But, you know, I mean, it's a lifestyle thing. You know, there's sometimes where there's stuff that goes on that you just don't have control over and you need some help with it one way or another. So, Was it difficult to come off of it? Um, for me, it, it really wasn't. Um, there were some times where it there would be some anxiety kick in just because of work. Um, and I, I mean, I still have that go on, but it's nowhere near as bad as it used to be. And, um, I, f I found different ways to cope with it. Um, actually, um, changed my diet a little bit. Um, and also, um, exercising, uh, has a lot to help with it too. So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, I know there's a enormous amount of, um, prejudice against those of us who have had a mental illness and I'm like you. I have suffered in my career uh, mental illness, so I also suffered from depression. It wasn't that long ago, and I was uh, offline for six months. I was on antidepressants, and uh, I found for myself cognitive behavior treatment uh, was the path back to a stable situation. But uh, I think the important things for all of us to realize is that uh, when you get in this situation, you treat it like any other illness. You know it's just a, an imbalance of chemicals in the brain, and uh, it doesn't necessarily um, put you in the situation where you're going to do any damage. But, of course, the first thing I did when I came to the conclusion that I wasn't happy uh, with my life anymore uh, was to tell my airline, and uh, then we sought uh, expert medical assistance, and uh, I was only on the drugs for a very short time because I didn't like being on antidepressants. It's not a pleasant thing. And I found that um, really confronting the situation I was in and talking about it to other people was the road to me coming to terms with it. And after obviously going through all the required uh, checks and balances, uh, I was declared fit back to fly again. But uh, it's... I remember speaking to the company doctor uh, when, uh, because I was under the, uh, obviously, I was under a professor of uh, psychology. I was under my own general practitioner and under the company doctor of all as well as the civil aviation uh, experts. I had to convince them all that uh, uh, I was fit to fly again. And uh, But one of the things that everyone uh, said was, you shouldn't have to tell people about this because of the prejudice you're likely to meet amongst the general public when they know that their pilot um, has, in inverted commas, had a, melt uh, a, a mental illness. So depression is actually a very common thing. And although it's classed as a mental illness, we all know it's just perhaps a phase you might be going through because of stress. And in my case, that's exactly what it was. I was overstressed doing my job. and. Yeah, and the excess of um, those fight and flight symptoms that we get when we're working so hard that we can't come down from a feeling of being uh, on the edge. Uh, and that's what it was for me. I had to learn how to relax again and how to uh, quietly enjoy my life. And uh, part of it has been actually being on this show because I get to express <laughs> myself and meet wonderful people all around the world. But, uh, yeah, I think the more of us that are happy to admit the fact that we have suffered from depression, uh, the easier it will be for other people to come out and the less they're likely to suffer in silence. 
Sure. And, you know, like Captain Nick said, I think that really kind of underscores how common the problem is, too. You know, we don't hear about it often or people don't talk about it often, but um, this is a very, very, very commonly prescribed medication, at least here in the United States. And it's prescribed for a whole variety of reasons. Like you, like Stephen mentioned, like Captain Nick said, it was it can be for anxiety, it can be for depression. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the symptoms are necessarily severe either. It can be that you just need a little bit of help getting through whatever your daily stressors are. So um, if you're taking it and you want to be a pilot, like I said, it's not, at least for the FAA, it's a case-by-case basis. So, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you have to come off of it either to to get there, it looks like. so. I, I do think one of the problems as well, is, and I think our, our royal family have done a very good job of that in the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks, is that especially if you're a guy, and I speak from my own personal experience uh, on, on this, it is something that's very, very difficult as a guy to talk about um, to try and get your head around this whole sort of I think half the battle is trying to admit that you do actually have something not wrong with you but you do actually have a problem that you you always have to admit it's a bit like I suppose it's like Alcoholics Anonymous isn't it you've got to admit you've got a problem first and then <laughs> and then try and do something about it but I think it is so much harder as as a guy to actually because uh, we're not as uh, I mean I'm very lucky in the fact that I've got very kind and supportive friends around me but there are a lot of people I know who don't have that support network around there and they certainly couldn't sit there and have a chat with their friends about the fact that um, you know they're depressed or they're miserable and they're having dark thoughts and, and things like that and it, I think I think I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here when I say that it's very difficult for guys to just just open up and and talk about stuff and I do think that's that's half the battle so Great question, Alex. Thank you very much for bringing that up in the discussion. So, oh, yeah, one more comment. Here. Thank you, for Stephen, for opening up the uh, conversation. And Alex, wow, I, I didn't realize how important his question was regarding that. This is great. So, thank you, everybody, for your input regarding that. Now, to a little bit lighter subject, uh, Danielle sent us some feedback. Hi, APG crew. I'm a fairly new listener to your podcast, and I absolutely love it. Thank you so very much for what you do. I found your podcast from listening to uh, – do we need to mention him? No. Okay. No no one that you all have ever heard of. To Pilot Pip <laughs> and the Plane oh, Safety no, Podcast. No. I'm, I'm wearing his hat here. <laughs> uh, let me just stop by saying that Pilot Pip is so sad that he couldn't be with us here in Pittsburgh. And Pilot Pip, if you're listening – we miss you. We love you, and uh, we really appreciate everything. Yes. Well, almost. And everything we wish you, you were here, <laughs> yeah. mostly. Yeah. Well, thanks for the hat. Yeah. <laughs> At least there's that. Um, yes. Uh, anyway, he said, which I she says, uh, which I love so much. I enjoy listening every day on my 45 minute commute back and forth to the to work in the Boston area. I do not have an aviation background at all. I'm an audiologist working with our country's veterans, but I do love to fly and travel and learn as much as I can about aviation. And I think many of our listeners you know, fall right in that category, that uh, they're just really interested in aviation and uh, they're, they're not really connected to it directly, but uh, they just uh, it's part of their lives. And we, uh, we appreciate all of you out there that are like that. Anyway, her question says, is Airbus related? I frequently fly JetBlue and most often am on the A320. I've noticed that if my seat is far forward enough, I can hear some repetitive beats from beeps from the cockpit upon landing, similar sounding to the beeps heard during Captain Nick's introduction. I think she's talking about these beeps, maybe. And catch the mouse. 
<laughs> the mouse. Yeah. You have mice on the airplane? She says, curious as to what these indicate. My apologies if this has been discussed in the past. I've listened to all the current podcasts, and I'm slowly making my way. Episode one, in between new episodes. Ooh. Oh, you know what that means? That means I'm she so sorry, Daniel. Has I'm so sorry. Oh, not applause. <laughs> she <laughs> she has this the APG the syndrome. Feared APG syndrome. Yeah, sorry, so sorry. And as far as we know, there is no cure. Nope. All right. Uh, so getting back again to her feedback, she says. Uh, I do skip ahead uh, to – I did skip ahead to episode 200 where Jeff was a blithering idiot. No, she didn't say that. <laughs> After hearing Pilot Pip's episode discussing the meetup, and it was amazing, and it was a fun episode, and it was a great time. Anyway, big thanks to all of you for taking your time out of your busy schedules to create such a wonderful podcast. Wishing you nothing – wishing you all nothing but clear skies, Danielle. And uh, so would you please answer Danielle's question about those strange-sounding beeps? It's the cavalry. <laughs> it's it, uh, Al's going to nod, and I hope get it right. It is uh, officially termed by Airbus the cavalry charge, and uh, it's an indication that the pilot has just taken control of the aircraft away from all the automatics, and he is now manually flying it down to the runway to perform his perfect landing. Oh, it's kind of like warning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. morning, morning, Professor Danger. Robinson. Danger. <laughs> a human is flying the airplane. Watch yes. out. Al's going to say something now. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it indicates the either that the autopilot has been intentionally or unintentionally disconnected. So um, I just had an idea. So I thought I would uh -oh. go around the room. There are, there are a few uh, pilots here who fly airplanes with autopilot. So I thought that seeing as we've just discussed the noise that the Airbus makes, we'd go around and see if we can get some impersonations of the noises <laughs> that their aeroplane makes. So I thought we'd start off with Jeff. Jeff's got to try and remember because he never puts the autopilot in. <laughs> yes, I do. So, uh, so Jeff, what sort of noise does your aeroplane make when you disconnect the autopilot? I'm trying to recall what it was. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, it's one, it's, it's a challenge for us. Because when we disconnect the autopilot, we try to do it exactly right so that it doesn't make the warning sound. Uh, so if you if you disconnect, so the disconnect autopilot disconnect switch on the control yoke. Uh, if you so you gag the autopilot. Yes. So you 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 you, <laughs> you kind of you click it and then if it's you click it. It's an interesting night so, out with okay, you, so, isn't so, it? So, <laughs> so what happens is when you click it once, the autopilot disconnects and you get that uh, annoying warning. And if you click it again, then it cancels the warning. And so what you do is you kind of click it, and then like a half second later, you click it again. And if you have any experience with this, you can do it so that it never makes that obnoxious warning. Normally, when you click it twice, you get more noise. Not, not on our airplane. Oh, okay. That's just ladies. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know what you were referring to. Yeah. Uh, so you can't remember the noise that your airplane makes? Uh, I need to look it up. Okay, all right. So, well, we'll come back to you. We'll okay, give you some please. thinking time. Have a minute. Give me a chance. <laughs> okay. So, can you remember what your airplane does? Okay, and you're, and you're ready now to broadcast to the world the noise it makes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I flew the Embraer 145. So, um, so here we go. Autopilot. Autopilot. 
And just while for a comic effect, does it also do the same as the Embraer 145 did for when you go into the barber's pole at the high speed end? You've never gone there, have you? Okay, all right. <laughs> Overspeed. Overspeed. Well, no, actually, actually, on the Embraer 145, if I remember right, it's been a few years, as you sort of went into the barber's pole at the high speed, it would go, high speed in a female voice, almost like an encouragement. <laughs> and then if you, if you continue to accelerate, it would turn into a slightly more male Germanic style thing of high speed. So I kind of got the, the idea then. So who else? Uh, Steph, you fly um, the Cirrus, don't yes. you? Yes. It makes horrible beeping noise uh, when you disconnect the autopilot, which I probably can't. Yeah, no, no, you need well. to do the noise. You uh, need to do the noise. I'm just trying to remember how many beeps it actually makes. I think it's two beeps three times. Like, beep, beep. Like that? Is that right? I don't know. No, that was just two beeps. I know, but it does it a bunch times, of times. Huh? But hold on, I want to see if I'm. Oops. So what we're gradually getting the gist here is that most of the pilots don't actually oh. know the noises around. <laughs> no, I do know what it makes. I just can't impersonate it. you have autopilot, yeah? I have autopilot on the uh, Trinidad, which is made in France. So uh, I warn my, my passengers before because it's a very loud squawk. It goes, beep! Zoot alarm! Zoot alarm! <laughs> Zoot alarm! <laughs> uh, anybody else got an autopilot? No, no, Jeff... Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm trying words? to find it. I'm trying to find it. <laughs> Let me, uh, let's see what this one sounds like. Fire left engine. That's not it. <laughs> Fire right engine. That's not it. Fire right engine. Let's see. That's it. <laughs> Autopilot. <laughs> Autopilot. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> See how obnoxious Captain L is? I mean, these uh, warnings are in the airplane. <laughs> Do you remember we were talking about uh, Pilot Pip earlier? And apparently Pip's latest podcast, uh, Lane Street in the uh, chat room said that apparently Pip's latest podcast is entitled, not in a grumpy way at all, I'm not in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> And also another comment in the chat room from Mariana. Um, she just realized that uh, Captain Al speaks like a valley girl. It's a US thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very astute observation, Mariana. <laughs> so keep the com uh, comments coming in the chat room. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. You know what? It might be time for this week's installment of Plane Tales by the Old Pilot. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, the Aviators of Pittsburgh. 1911 saw a young adventurer from Pittsburgh challenge the new world of aviation. Calbraith Perry Rogers, Jr. was born on January the 12th, 1879, to a family with a long history of prestigious U.S. Navy service. But a childhood battle with scarlet fever left him partially deaf and ineligible for military service. Refusing to let his deafness inhibit his desire for adventure, Rogers was a romantic model of a daredevil at the time, six foot four inches tall and with an ever-present cigar wedged in his mouth. 
He was a football star, yachtsman, and auto racer. At the age of 33, he found his calling. Rogers had visited the Wright Flying School, operated by the famous aviation pioneers and brothers Orville and Wilbur Wright. There, he saw an airplane for the first time and became fascinated with the idea of flying. Just one week after Rogers began taking classes at the school, he requested permission to take a solo flight, but he was denied due to lack of training, so, predictably, he responded by purchasing his own training plane. And on June 12, 1911, he made his first solo flight. After practicing with his plane for just over a month, Rogers passed the Federation Aeronautique Internationale's flying examination on August the 7th, becoming only the 49th licensed aviator in the world. Less than a week later, whilst participating in the Chicago Air Show, a promoter asked Rogers if he would be interested in competing for a prize that the publisher, William Randolph Hearst, had recently offered. $50,000 was to be given to the first person who flew from coast to coast across America in fewer than 30 days. Rogers, unsurprisingly, accepted the challenge. He purchased a lightweight four-cylinder, 35-horsepower, model EX biplane from the Wright Company, the first ever sold to a private buyer. Rogers told Orville Wright of his plan to compete for the Hearst Prize, but Wright, doubting any modern plane's ability to travel so far, questioned Rogers' decision. An adventurer and risk-taker, though, he paid no attention. He secured sponsorship for his adventure from the Armour Meatpacking Company, which was promoting its new grape soda, Vin Fizz, the namesake of Rogers' plane. He had already won the $11,000 World Grand Endurance Aviation Contest in Chicago, staying in the air for 27 hours at intervals over a period of nine days. So, convinced in his own ability, he set off. Just three months after learning how to fly, Rogers took off from Sheep's Head Bay in Long Island, New York, on September the 17th, 1911 poised to reach the Pacific Ocean in 30 days. A support train, arranged by his sponsors, followed his flight, carrying all the parts, tools and mechanics necessary for repairs and maintenance. The Vin Fizz crashed on its second takeoff and suffered extensive damage. More incidents, including two engine explosions, more than 15 crashes, and as many as 70 rough landings significantly delayed Rogers. Each time, crew members carefully and expertly rebuilt the plane, and Rogers headed westward with the sun in his eyes. He weathered electrical storms in Oklahoma and reached Kansas City on October the 14th. His sponsors then directed him to take his route to the more populous southwest, so he turned towards Texas, arriving on October the 17th, 1911. It would eventually take two weeks and 29 stops to get across Texas. In addition to his maintenance problems, 
Rogers lacked navigation tools. He didn't even have a compass, and as a result, he got off track on multiple occasions. It was clear he would not be able to complete the journey in 30 days, but he was determined to finish the trip anyway. As news spread, he became incredibly popular with the American public, as evidenced by the crowd of 20,000 waiting for him in Pasadena, California, when he landed there on November 5, 1911. Finally, on December 10, he landed in Long Beach and taxied his plane up to the Pacific Ocean, completing the world's first transcontinental flight. The cross-country trip took 49 days to complete, missing the prize deadline by 19 days. While the feat made Rogers an instant national celebrity, his success was sadly short-lived. He was killed in a plane crash after flying into a flock of birds just a few months later at an air show in California. Following his death, Rogers was interred in the Allegheny Cemetery in Pittsburgh, the Vin Fears itself was later given to the Smithsonian Institution by Calbraith's widow, Mabel Rogers. If Rogers was one of Pittsburgh's first aviating sons, then Helen Ritchie was certainly their first aviating daughter. Born in McKeesport near Pittsburgh on November 21, 1909, she was a self-proclaimed tomboy who ran away from home at the age of 12 and joined a circus. Her authoritarian father promptly bought her home, but Richie preferred male clothing and wore her hair in a boyish bob long before it was stylish. She shunned dolls, preferring to play with mechanical toys. After graduating high school, Helen enrolled in the Pittsburgh Carnegie Tech for a career in education, but she found it dull, and after a few months, she dropped out, still looking for the spark that would light that flame of interest. Ironically, her aviation interest began by accident. Richie lived near an airport, and one day she and a friend decided to take a ride to Cleveland just for fun. They flew to Cleveland, perched on some mail sacks inside a wacko biplane. When Ruth Nichols landed at Cleveland the same day, dressed in her white flying suit, Helen's eyes popped. When she saw the newspapermen, photographers and autograph seekers gathering around her, Richie suddenly knew what she wanted to do with her life. Standing only five foot four inches tall, those who saw her fly said she was a natural. Helen enrolled in a flight school and was awarded her pilot's license on the 28th of June 1930. In celebration of her accomplishment, her father bought her an open cockpit biplane. However, a pilot's license was not enough. Helen was smart enough to realise that the future for pilots would be with commercial airlines, so she went on to earn her commercial pilot's license on December 4, 1930. Despite this, the thrill of stunt flying lured her away from the airline industry and Helen became an aerobatic pilot. Having no formal training in this type of flying, she relied on observation and her natural talent. By 1932, her flying skills had earned her nationwide notoriety, especially after she finished third in the Amelia Earhart Trophy race. 
Because of this popularity, Frances Marsalis, another prominent female aviator, contacted Ritchie, and in 1933, Ritchie was Marsalis's co-pilot when they set a new record for a 10-day endurance flight. To accomplish this feat, the women circled around the city of Miami, with two other pilots flying up to meet them over 83 times to provide fuel, food, water and repair materials. Without the modern advances that we enjoy now, refueling consisted of one of the two pilots climbing out of a hatch, catching the fuel nozzle as it descended from the other plane and shoving it into the fuel tank. Not only was this extremely dangerous, but it also presented a very high likelihood that they would get sprayed with gasoline. Helen gained acclaim when on the sixth day the nozzle came loose and catching on the wing tore the fabric. In order to ensure they could stay aloft long enough to set the record, Ritchie climbed out onto the wing with needle and thread and repaired the tear. Upon landing, officials declared that they had set a new record for a refueling endurance flight by staying aloft for 237 hours and 42 minutes and flying a total of 23,700 miles. In August 1934, she flew in the first women's national air meet. She finished sixth in the 20-mile race, but her eyes were set on the featured event, a 50-mile race. With only six miles to go, Helen Ritchie and Edna Gardner were fighting for the lead when Marsalis came up from behind and tried to overtake them. However, going around a turn, Marsalis's aircraft hit some turbulent slipstream, causing her wingtip to scrape the ground, catapulting the plane end over end, until it came to rest in a field. Ritchie went on to win the race, but the news that Marsalis had died from her injuries whilst en route to hospital made it a bitter-sweet victory. Adding to that victory, Helen was awarded the prestigious Fairchild Trophy later that year. After only four years of flying, she was at the top of her game, and proving herself to be one of the best pilots in the nation, but she had lost her taste for aerobatics. Helen accepted a job with Central Airlines and became the first woman to fly a commercial airliner on a regularly scheduled mail route in December 31, 1934. Newspapers across the country cited Central Airlines as breaking new ground and Helen was leading the way for the dawn of women coming of age. What Helen had failed to realise was that Central Airlines was in stiff competition with Pennsylvania Airlines for the best mail routes. So Helen was viewed less as a pilot and more as a publicity goldmine. She spent more time signing autographs and handing out postcards than actually flying. The Civil Aeronautics Authority also recommended that she only fly in fair weather, Sadly, Helen also faced heavy discrimination from the male pilots and was refused admittance into their union. Fed up, she quit after only ten months and returned to flying privately and in competition. 
Despite the fact that America was not yet engaged in the war, it had become evident by the late 1930s that their involvement may become necessary. To that end, Ritchie attended an intensive pilot instructor's course and became the first woman not only to earn a pilot instructor's license, but also to be assigned to train military pilots. Her assignments took her to Philadelphia, Boston and Los Angeles. Completing that assignment, she returned to McKeesport, and after some formal aerobatics training, she began to teach airline pilots how to become instructors. Helen applied for the women's division of the British Air Transport Auxiliary, the ATA. She was immediately accepted, and after three weeks training in Canada, Helen sailed for England in March. She was assigned to the White Waltham Aerodrome near Maidenhead in Berkshire. She started her training and took her first flight on April the 11th in a Miles Magister. The ATA girls were charged with ferrying planes from the factories where they were built to RAF airfields all over Britain. By June, in addition to the Magister, she had flown Harvards, Oxfords, Masters, Hurricanes and Albacores. In July, she took up a Spitfire for the first time, but that flight ended in a crash landing. Determined not to let it get the best of her, she went back up in August and flew nothing but Spitfires for the rest of the month. The ATA girls were accustomed to flying many different types at a moment's notice, and as such they all carried ferry pilot's notes, which detailed how to fly each plane and any pertinent quirks or idiosyncrasies. Helen said that sometimes we would hurriedly skim through the pilot's operating manual to find out how to take off, then keep reading the book while in flight to find out how to land the damn thing. These missions were dangerous, not only because of their unfamiliarity with the aircraft, but also because there was always a risk of encountering the enemy. By September, Helen found herself in charge of the 20 American pilots in her unit. In 1943, Helen's mother fell ill and she returned home. However, after her mother's death, she was accepted into the Women's Air Force Service Pilots. The mission of WASP was much the same as the ATA girls, so after a short amount of training in Texas, she was assigned to the second ferrying group of the Air Transport Command in Wilmington, Delaware. Here she flew many different missions in a variety of aircraft. In 1944, she was transferred to Kansas City so that she could train on bombers and cargo planes before returning to Delaware. By the time that WASP disbanded in December 1944, Helen had flown 300 hours in 27 different types of aircraft. With the war over, Helen returned to McKeesport to her family. However, aviation jobs were scarce due to the influx of male pilots returning from the war. Despondent, she moved to New York, but having never fully recovered from the death of her friend Marsalis or the recent death of her mother, and believing that her flying career was over, she fell into a deep depression. She felt that there was no place for her to do the job that she loved so much. On January the 7th, 1947, Helen Ritchie took her own life. 
her hometown of McKeesport, named a park in her honour. But on March the 11th, 2010, her true worth was finally recognised and Helen Ritchie was posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. Wow, another amazing installment of Plain Tales. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jeff. I appreciate everyone uh, listening to that so nicely and quietly. <laughs> Intently, I think, is the word for it. <laughs> Intently. No, actually, uh, for, for people who come from Pittsburgh, uh, they should be rightfully proud of these two uh, wonderful pilots. One of them, very, very early aviator, who uh, really set the tone for the adventurism of uh, aviation in the United States. Uh, really, the very first guy to buy uh, a, an aircraft from the Wright brothers uh, and then to fly it f completely from one coast to the next to the point of actually taxiing into um, the uh, ocean when he landed at Long Beach. I think it was actually brilliant. What a <laughs> yeah. Well, it was part to prove the fact that he'd actually done it from coast to coast. Uh, it was a hell of an adventure for him and his backers, but uh, sadly he uh, killed very shortly after uh, and bird strike incident. So even back in those days when you flew so slow, it was still pretty damn dangerous. And then Helen Ritchie is just a, a heroine of uh, aviation. Um, not only uh, one of the very first air, uh, female airline pilots, but a, uh, a, a fine pilot during the war doing that appallingly difficult job of delivering uh, aircraft uh, from the factories to the squadrons, uh, often flying types, uh, very different types, uh, from one moment to the next, and uh, really having to do everything on the hoof. Uh, fabulous and uh, very sad in to her life too. But no, uh, Pittsburgh has got a great um, history of uh, fantastic aviators. That was so full-packed with information. I'm going to have to listen to that again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. You're welcome. Okay, our next piece of feedback from Richard. Oh, just, oh. On, just on the uh, plane tiles note, actually, you've, uh, you've got some good, really good feedback from the chat room. Uh, Nick, uh, Lane Street in the chat room says, another eloquent and entertaining plane tiles. And uh, Tony S. Uh, says, awesome, Nick, very topical. Oh, yes, of course. And uh, Mariana says, lovely tale, Nick. Oh, isn't she nice? Yes. Um, Mariana's a lovely lady. Well, thank you all very much. Oh, and uh, Tony S. has also just said that Steph looks like she's setting off for Antarctica. <laughs> well, I should thank Liz Piper very much for the uh, gloves that she has kindly shared with me up here. So, but... I'm really not that cold. It's a little chilly but here, actually. Little, I mean, it's, it's chilly, <laughs> yeah. but I'm, I'm making a little more of a show of it. Than... <laughs> do it outside. I don't. I think it was Carlos's idea, wasn't it, to do it outside? No. Guys, point out. Well, before we came out here, Jeff, you, did, and shoes you guaranteed us that, that we'd be in uh, blazing no. hot sunshine and that we had to bring our shorts. You know that is not and, true. Uh, I, I was. <laughs> we. We talked uh, before, you know, a couple, several hours ago. Like, uh, and I said, "When are you gonna? What are you? Where are you gonna do the show?" I said, "I don't know. Maybe outside in the courtyard." Yeah. Okay, it's my fault. I decided it was a good place to do it. <laughs> the truth comes out. Yes. Okay. Uh, anybody else want to make any uh, smart comment? I mean, uh, nice comments. No. Okay. 
Yeah, it is cold outside. Uh, Richard, you know, I thought it would be kind of cool to have a live audience, but now I'm thinking I like the other way we do it. <laughs> I think regret is yeah, a good regret word. Yeah, regret is a good word. Comes to mind. <laughs> I just need to take some more of my senior moment mints and I'll be okay. <laughs> uh, Richard says, hi, ABG crew. I found this article uh, that says German airlines are relaxing the two people in the flight deck at all times rule from June 1st. I've worked at my airline as cabin crew for over nine years, and we've always had the two in the flight deck rule. And I was shocked how many airlines didn't have this in place when the German wings accident happened. The article says that the rule did not increase safety, but could rather create other risks. For example, due to the door being open for longer to let the crew in and out. This is such rubbish. The process of letting a pilot out and a cabin crew member in takes no longer than a pilot coming out. Okay, maybe a second or two. But the door is still being opened and closed twice to let the pilot out and then back again. I'm not sure about other airlines, but when a pilot needs the bathroom on my flights, I block the galley with a trolley, have a crew member ready to go while I monitor the passengers. If anyone even looks like they're going to walk to the front of the door open, I quickly close the flight deck door, which has happened a number of times. Why can't passengers see the seatbelt sign? My God, that winds me up. As a passenger, you have pretty much one thing to look at, the seatbelt <laughs> sign. Why, oh, why, on a four-hour flight, do you choose to get out of your seat during the four minutes it's on? Anyway, that's a rant for a different day. I think, well, I think that, that was a rant for today, actually. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Richard Nash in England is going to uh, rant some more, I think, in a future feedback. I'd love to hear all of your crew's views on this. Have a great week. Forward to the next podcast. Thanks a lot. So, I knew... Uh, that we have several people that might have an opinion because I've heard it before and, um, you know, wondering about what, what you think about the fact that uh, they kind of instituted this rule and now it looks like they're going, you know, maybe that wasn't a great idea. And now all the U.S. carriers, that rule is not going to change. But the European carriers, it looks like that uh, they're, they're taking a second look at this and thinking perhaps not a wise decision to institute this two-person at Two persons in the cockpit at all times rule. And we'll start with Captain Nick. I'm sure you have some thoughts about this. Well, the initial concept, of course, was a little bit of a knee jerk um, because they felt that protection was absolutely necessary and uh, the public were, to a certain extent, demanding it. Uh, so it was instigated, I think, without a lot of uh, thought as being the safest option. Um, I think we have to, first of all, uh, look at the rarity of uh, these kind of incidents where uh, a pilot will deliberately lock another pilot out of the flight deck because their mental state is so poor. And we've kind of touched upon this a little bit today. There are, of course, different categories of um, mental illness. Some are severe, some are mild. Um, and obviously, in the German Wings case, it was an extremely severe case. And there were lots of other areas where it would have been possible to have prevented that accident. And really and honestly, the two people in the cockpit rule was not necessarily the best way to have done it. A much better way to have done it would have been to have ensured that the medical uh, condition of the pilot uh, involved was better known to the aviation authorities. Uh, because then uh, he could have been treated properly and his condition could have been monitored by the authorities that the fact that it was hidden by the um, the rules uh, that existed in Germany at the time, I think are the major cause of the accident. Now, 
uh, I'm going to put it to you that having two people on the cockpit uh, doesn't necessarily make the cockpit safer because uh, the person you're inviting onto the cockpit to replace the, uh, say in this case, the captain, say who's left, might be someone who's only been employed by the company for a few uh, months may uh, have only had a few weeks of training and uh, honestly uh, the security or the checks that are done on a cabin crew member who inevitably will be the person who comes on the flight deck won't have been uh, particularly rigorous uh, certainly compared with pilots um, so uh, you're getting someone of an almost unknown um, background on the flight deck to sit behind the only pilot left now if there was someone amongst the uh, many cabin crew that are on our aircraft uh, who might be of a disposition to do something similar to the German wings pilot's actions, that would be much more likely because one, there are more of them, and two, you don't know, you know a lot less about them than you would do a pilot. Uh, they're now in a position on the flight deck to do exactly what the German wings pilot to do did, except, of course, all they have to do now is to take out the the uh, pilot that's left on board, which is a relatively simple thing to do. I won't explain exactly how, but yes, it's please not don't. hard at all. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, then you do exactly the same thing. So I think, actually, the thought was that, particularly in some airlines where we get very experienced pilots, Acme Red only has pilots with a lot of hours, type ratings, have been on airlines for a while and their career is well known. Um, we're not one of those airlines where we've got a lot of very young pilots. Um, it was much safer perhaps to leave the one pilot on his own. We know what he's like, we know he's good and safe, so better that than introduce an almost unknown party behind him on the flight deck. So I think that was the thought. You don't necessarily make the flight deck safer by bringing a, uh, another member of the crew on in there behind him. Yeah, we have a question from Micah. Excellent. Kind of a follow-up along those lines in terms of uh, whether you have two people or not on the flight deck, and I can't remember the exact uh, situation or the flight number, but weren't there uh, two people, uh, both pilots on board that Egypt air crash um, when uh, they came down out of Kennedy? And remember back, and I, again, I don't remember the flight number, but you'll know the, uh, remember the incident, uh, when the uh, FedEx plane was taken down all by crew because a guy brought on the spear gun and it was a whole crew of pilots on board and it still happened. Um, so uh, I'm just kind of interested in if you remember those particular incidents and what happened there. I remember the FedEx one, Micah. Uh, it was a, uh, um, a flight engineer who, with a mental illness who thought that he would uh, commit suicide by crashing the aircraft whose actions he hoped would be hidden by the uh, incident, so he came on board deadheading with a, a bag full of uh, tools that he hoped wouldn't be considered to be um, unusual. And then uh, once he uh, got onto the flight deck in the, in the air, he attacked the pilots uh, with hammers and a spear gun and various other things. Uh, but the, the pilots, although they were quite severely injured, managed to get the aircraft back on the ground, uh, although to my knowledge, none of them ever flew again because of their injuries. Mm -hmm. um, so that sort of situation didn't change the rules, as I recall. Um, so there's one case where they looked at and said, this is 
such an unusual incidence, uh, incident that uh, there's no reason to change our general rules, which have worked very well. Uh, the other one I'm not so sure about, but I do get your point in that I don't think you necessarily need to always change the rules when you get a, a one-off incident or a very very rare and very unusual incident. The, the rules generally work very well. And the rule changes typically become reactionary and yeah. you should never just react you should always think them through when changing rules even passenger policies etc and so on don't just change a rule think about whether this was an unusual incident exactly right because it's it's much harder to relax the rules afterwards than it is to invent a new one which doesn't necessarily happen because of a lot of consideration thought and examination but generally as a knee-jerk reaction by um, governments who are looking to pacify the general population. And I think even if you had, you know, we talked about treating the pilots better in terms of mental health and, and all of that. I think even if you had a perfect treatment program in place, a perfect program in place where people could be open and share those details and not have fear of prejudice or discrimination for being treated for those things or fear that they're going to lose their jobs or their medical certificate or their, you know, all of that. I think even in a perfect situation, you're still going to have instances that you cannot account for. So there's nothing out there that is truly a perfect screening program, a perfect treatment program, a perfect, you know, corporate environment, whatever it is that you want to call it, that's going to prevent those things. So, you know, I agree with it from that perspective, 100%. And I'm, I have to admit, I'm, I'm coming around quite a bit. Uh, you know, I thought uh, at first I was surprised that not every airline around the world was doing what we had been doing here in the U.S. for so many years. And my knee-jerk reaction was, well, we're doing it right, and why haven't you been doing it? And now I'm starting to see some of the other arguments from you know other parts of the world, and I'm, I'm kind of coming around on this. So I, a lot of good points from both sides of the argument. Uh, we have another question from Brian. So, Captain Nick, you talk about a non-qualified person being in, on the flight deck, and that's not a good idea. But I'd raise the question, isn't it a good idea? Because potentially, although they might not be qualified to fly the plane, they might be able to open the door and call for help or have someone else come to assistance if the person flying the plane decided to do something. Isn't that better than not having anyone at all? Well, no, I think the theory is that the person you bring on the flight deck is more likely to be the person that causes the incident. Um, so, uh, Brian, uh, the person you bring on might be someone who is, because of the limited background checks on every airline employee, uh, might be actually someone who has uh, a reason to want to crash the aircraft. And he's just waiting for his or her moment to come on the flight deck when they're, they're asked to relieve the pilot who that is going to the toilet. And then once they're on the flight deck, they attack the perfectly sane normal pilot from behind, which is a relatively easy thing to do if you uh, are on the flight deck and standing behind the pilot and having then killed them or disabled them, um, cause the aircraft to crash. So I think that is as big a threat, if not bigger, than just leaving a pilot on the flight deck on his own. So you guys are really hiring people that I should be scared crapless over, is what you're saying, right? <laughs> okay. Well, you could be as well. 
<laughs> so the answer is that uh, either you instigate extremely high-level checks on every single employee, or you just try and limit the threat. And, and uh, because uh, we obviously get a lot of cabin crew compared with the number of pilots, pilots generally are very well known in the industry. It's a small number of pilots. We all tend to know each other. We all know each other's backgrounds. We've often worked together. They've come from other airlines. They have a history, a well-known employment record, uh, all those things. Um, and that makes pilots a known, generally speaking, a known work group. The guy on German wings was a very new employee straight into the industry from his flying school. And it was obvious from day one that he was a bit of a problem, but the, uh, the information had been withheld from the, his employer. And therein lies the problem. Now, uh, we know cabin crew come on to an airline, they perhaps work for a year or two, they move. It's uh, Captain Al here. I just wanted to introduce another element to the uh, the discussion. Um, in airlines that had the two-person on the flight deck rule imposed on them in the aftermath of German wings, uh, they noticed quite a, a trend change, really, because historically where you could elect to go to the bathroom whenever was appropriate to you, yet obviously you wouldn't do it during takeoff and approach and so forth, but you were able to uh, moderate your own fluid consumption so that you went to the bathroom when it was convenient. Um, from CRM perspective, because obviously having to get one of the, the cabin crew to come onto the flight deck for the, the pilots to go to the bathroom interrupts the service um, and therefore causes a degree of annoyance on behalf of the cabin crew. And sure, they do it because they have to do it, but if they're in the middle of a, of a service, it means that one of them, and quite often airlines will have minimum crew, so there isn't just a spare person kicking around to go onto the flight deck. Um, what happened after a while is that the pilots started to change their behavior with regards to the consumption of water and then you start to have the medical side effects of that with regards to dehydration um, and quite frankly working in a very dehydrating environment and effectively starving yourself of water so that you go to the the bathroom less frequently because it's inconvenient is in the long term and it's a subject fairly close to me as some guys will know is going to have detrimental effect on your health and you know I'm sure Steph will advocate that we should drink quite a reasonable amount of water because you know we need to flush the toxins out so if you decide right well ordinarily I'll drink you know a liter two liters of water on this flight and you end up having no water um, then it's not a good idea yeah that's an interesting perspective you know you, you definitely want to keep health and safety concerns there and dehydration is a big one so yeah when I, I canvassed a few guys when um, my own airline went back to um, not having the two pilot rule and they said oh yeah we drink a lot more water now like, well yeah if we'd stuck with this rule for you know five ten fifteen years how many pilots health would have been affected by it you know well we don't know really statistically but i suspect quite a lot whereas the difference for you jeff is that you've always had this rule so you've not had a change in behavior so you know wh where you consume your you know fluid uh, water whether it be in the form of beer or, or the conventional variety um, you know hasn't changed but where, where you have a, an enforced change it has quite a detrimental effect yeah. yeah my one question would be where does pilot incapacitation come into this versus actual malicious acts yeah that's another aspect of it um, yeah so you have the flight deck uh, prohibits access 
then it, you can get back onto the flight deck. So that's not a problem. Yeah, it takes Seriously. some time. But, uh, you know, in most cases, this is this kind of thing would happen at cruise with the autopilot system fully engaged. So unless there, you know, it was just bad karma where you have a pilot incapacitation and then somehow the uh, auto flight system is deactivated yeah, or knocked very, off. Again, yeah. very statistically yeah, low very, chance very, of occurring yeah. situations. And I, I'd like to point out that the uh, the need to get someone on the flight to, to replace a pilot leaving is not compulsory. It's uh, up to the crew. If uh, I decide that I want to leave the flight deck for a while and I would like to have uh, a cabin crew member be on the flight deck monitoring my first officer, I'm quite at liberty to insist on that. So it's up to me as the captain whether I decide that it's necessary or not. So if I know my first officer and I completely and implicitly trust him, then generally speaking, I will probably go off on our own. But if I've got a new first officer, a new joiner, and I don't know him, and I uh, am the least bit concerned, I might well invite someone who from the camping crew who I know well to come on and replace me. So it's by no means a hard and fast or a change. It is an option to us, that's all. Uh, those of us that don't employ this rule as a hard and fast rule. So I can still do it if I feel the need, but I don't have to on every time I leave the flight deck. Make, I'll make this quick. What is the one thing that you think, Nick, I know you're not a terrorism expert or anything like that in terms of security, but you're a pilot. What's the one thing that would help make flying safer from a security perspective? Well, employing more pilots uh, so that would be a great assistance if we always had three pilots on the flight deck or we had uh, two pilots and a flight engineer. That would be great. I'm, I've never been a great fan of reducing the number of pilots and I've always uh, felt that it is better to have an extra bod on the flight deck just even from just a pure monitoring point of view. Uh, when there are just two of you, then uh, you, know, you can, particularly during an emergency situation, get one pilot being... Uh, uh, doing one job, one pilot do another, they're actually separated, they're not monitoring each other anymore. And it's very nice to have that third pair of hands. So if I had uh, unlimited mon money, I would ask for aircraft to be built with an extra pilot uh, on the flight deck uh, to be there for uh, assistance. But as it is, we're stuck with a minimum crew of two, and that's generally speaking uh, always the case for... Uh, Flights, you know, generally up to eight or even perhaps nine hours. So that would be the one simplest thing I can come off the top of my head uh, that would improve security. And one more thing, and this is actually uh, probably more for Jeff than for you, Nick, but uh, or maybe even Craig, because he might be aware of it. He's a, a pilot here in the uh, USA. But there's a program here that, I'll, and I can't remember what it's called, that allows for pilots who go through certain training to carry a sidearm with them in the cockpit. Uh, and uh, how does that affect in terms of the screening with that and the dangers that might be involved with that as well? And uh, maybe again, it may be something that you may not be allowed or would be inappropriate to comment on, but I'm wondering if that can be discussed some. It's called the uh, Federal Flight Deck Officer Program, FFDO. Can't really talk a lot about it because many of the details of this program are, you know, kept relatively secret. Uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but I can just let you know that they are actually federal agents, just like an FBI, FBI agent or any uh, federal 
law enforcement. They are actually law enforcement officers who have legal jurisdiction when you know when they're performing their job in the cockpit, and uh, so it just they get essentially the same kind of training that any federal law enforcement officer receives, and they're extremely well vetted. I assume they go through a major security clearance. Yes, then. yes, they do. And then they go through some pretty intense training as well, initially. And then they go through recurrent training at, uh, at certain periods. No, I, I'm, I'm just curious, Jeff, and don't answer the question if you're not comfortable, but where it'll, does the authority lie for that person to use his weapon if he's a first officer? Does it lie with himself as a federal agent or with the commander of the aircraft? You know, that is a really good question. I think maybe First Officer Craig might have uh, something to say about that. Uh, it's my understanding that, yes, the captain's PIC of the aircraft, but then when it comes to a safety concern, that regard where there's FFD on, FFDO on board, that if there's a need for it, then he or she then becomes the person in charge of the situation. The way I always looked at it is that's the person that has the gun. They're in <laughs> yeah. charge now. Now, that's a real interesting situation. I wonder how the general public would uh, feel about knowing that the commander would be playing second fiddle to his first officer uh, in that kind of a situation. Uh, I find that um, that's that's a most interesting. I haven't really thought much about it, but... Uh, it would take me quite a bit of mulling over to work out how I was going to play through various scenarios where that might occur. If somebody's trying to beat down that cockpit door and they actually break into the cockpit, I'll be very happy that if the person that I'm flying with has a weapon and knows how to use it, it's trained well, uh, takes care of quelling the situation. Absolutely. So, no, yeah. I, I go along with you there. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the situations where slightly more nuance might be required. So the chat room are having quite a massive discussion at the moment in there about what we're discussing here now. There's a question from Mariana in the chat room. She's asking, are pilot applicants given a psychological and psychiatric test as part of the hiring process? I can't speak for all the airlines, but uh, I know that my airline, that is part of the interview process. I'm assuming it is for all airlines. Uh, Craig, is that the case with... Uh, with, you don't have to get up if you don't want to. You're keeping Ashley warm over there. <laughs> By the way, it's very cold here. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I just had a normal uh, interview questionnaire sort of thing, so it wasn't any cognitive tests in the regional for that that I work for, but I'm sure the face-to-face interview is part of that cognitive, see that you're alive well right. and I can hold a conversation, this, that, and the other. So. Yeah, so how did you make it through that? Just kidding. Um, needed to play my rim shot there. Sorry. So uh, yeah. So I guess it's maybe the um, the the purview of the uh, of the airline whether or not they actually. I mean, for Acme Airlines, twenty eight and a half years ago, they actually had a you know a psych- psychologist that was actually part of the interview where you go in there. And it was so funny because people would really really worry about. I guess they had a rocking chair in the uh, in the room, and so you go in there, and people were just 
perplexed. Okay, when I sit down in the rocking chair, should I rock in the rocking chair or should I, should I like not rock in what the rocking chair? What does it say chair? about me if I rock versus if I sit yeah, still I'm thinking, just versus go, if I'm a little fidgety? Just go in there and just be yourself yeah. and whatever happens, happens. Don't worry about it. But people are really, there have been many people that were eliminated from getting hired by my airline because they did not pass the psychological part of it. We took bat a battery of uh, psychological tests as well. What do they call it? The... Um, Psychometric. The psychometric program. We have uh, something yeah. called uh, some kind of a personality. Myers. Uh, MMP. PI or, or Minnesota. Min yeah, yeah whatever. Multi or mini. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Thank you, Micah. That <laughs> and in addition to actually talking to a real person. And for me, it was just like talking to anybody here. It was like, you know, oh, so how do you feel about working for Acme? And you, you understand that part of the culture here is that uh, – you stand at the door and say goodbye to the passengers when they're leaving the flight. I mean, that's part of, you know, we've been doing that for years. Do you have a problem with that? <laughs> you, don't, you don't say, yeah, I got a problem with that. I'm too lazy to get up and say goodbye <laughs> to the passengers. Okay, thank you very much. We'll, we'll not hear from us again. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but as far as in-depth personality or uh, not personality, but uh, psychological probing and all that kind of stuff, no. You're not sitting on the couch with the shrink. And no. You know, yeah, I, I think if there were a foolproof method of doing that, we would all employ it. The industry would employ it. But there is no foolproof method. I mean, it's all a matter of judgment. And even a uh, psychiatrist will tell you that he, it is impossible to make a diagnosis in the same way that uh, a physician would diagnose a broken leg. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a he's got it or he hasn't. It's, it's very much down to a matter of opinion. It's subjective versus objective. Well, they let Thank you and, and Jeff and Al and, and Craig fly, so the standards are obviously very low. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've all managed to sleep through. That's why we're here on the podcast. Uh, Lane Street in the chat room is asking, how will the pilot shortage affect the screening procedures? Well, I think screening is screening. Either you make it or you don't. Uh, they don't I'm not going to drop the standards on essential uh, tests like that. Uh, what they might do is reduce the number of hours required, reduce the need for uh, type rating, that sort of thing, to ease the problem. But I, I don't seriously don't think that they will ever um, come. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, whatever uh, a compromise. Compromise. Thank you very much indeed, Liz. Uh, on uh, safety standards, that's the important point to get across. There's a question in the chat room um, that I thought was interesting, and uh, they um, ask uh, basically if, uh, you know, there's a U.S. Air Marshal program, uh, and again, this might not be able to be commented on, but do U.S. Air Marshals ever fly on international carriers coming to and from the U.S.? I, I really can't comment on that. No, I think each country has its own uh, form of protection in that uh, ilk. For example, uh, the U.K. has... Uh, uh, air marshals, but they're not U.S. air marshals. We have our uh, our own uh, a special branch police, armed police, who uh, perform that role. So, and I'm pretty sure that, uh, for example, Israel, who have had this sort of a program for a very long time, use their own people. The U.S. Uh, marshal service would not have jurisdiction over other uh, airlines of other countries. Hey, so speaking of people in the cockpit who aren't supposed to be there yeah i think there was a uh, another recent story about that really yes. well what happened steph so this was actually um 
gosh, it was Pakistan's. Uh, what was the name of the airline? No, I can't find it. Pakistani Air, I guess. Uh, something like that. Okay. But anyway, um, the pilot was accused of putting passengers potentially in danger, and the um, this is from the Mirror in the UK. So the uh, headline. Very trustworthy. The headline is awesome. Newspaper. It says. Uh, Pilot endangers passengers' lives after letting mystery woman into the cockpit for two hours during the flight. So an ordinary woman would be fine, but a mystery woman is mystery woman not okay. <laughs> not okay. Uh, so anyway, Pakistan is investigating that potential security breach uh, after the captain allowed the young woman to sit in with him until the plane landed. Uh, it was a flight from uh, Tokyo to Beijing, and I guess it was caught on camera as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, that is a great question. Um, when she went back to her seat, um, the person who was recording it asked if she enjoyed the landing. And she just looked at him with a confused expression on her face. So, what anyway, do you mean? That was just a nice uh, little corollary to her discussion no, I, that we I just had. I think we all deserve a huge thanks to whoever just pitched up with an enormous pile of pizza boxes. Thank David, you, David. Andrew, David, you are awesome. a hero. Airplane Thank you very geeks much represent. <laughs> exactly right. So now, excuse us if we're going to talk with slightly muffled voices while we uh, eat pizza and continue. Yes, it's the cheese kind of falling down my cheek. Um, you know what? It's really cold. At, well, I guess since now everybody has pizza, I was about to just end this thing, but since everybody's eating pizza, we can go on a little bit more. Okay. Everybody cool with that? It's kind of chilly here. It's about 12 degrees uh, Celsius and about 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. a, little bit of, a little bit of a breeze. Everybody's bundled up except Carl. He's in shorts. Um, not sure <laughs> what that says about Carl. but uh, Actually, Lane Street is trying to warm us all up here. Is he? uh, in the chat room, he's just mentioned the Mile High Club. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Very much like the uh, FFDO and Air Marshal program, not, not a lot of we can say about that. No, <laughs> but uh, it actually more likely to be Seven Mile High Club. Very good point. Unless you're flying at a very low cruise altitude. Very true, yes. Mile high plus. Some of us don't fly that high. So. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> well, here's some audio feedback. And uh, that would allow us to actually get some bites of pizza in. Yep. So uh, this is from, uh, Jim from Ken Akron. Hey, Jeff. This is Jim from Akron, Ohio. Hey, I've been a longtime listener and uh, almost since you uh, relaunched the podcast and uh, love the format with the, the multi-crew with uh, Nick and Dr. Steph and Dana and Rick. I hope you're back uh, on board someday. I just wanted to call to say thanks to Nick for all those uh, plain tales and especially the ones with his father, Andy Anderson. Those those were fantastic, and uh, hats off to you, Nick, for recognizing that, that that's something that needed to be shared with uh, everybody. So wish your father the best for us, and uh, thank him for everything he's done for us. And uh, unfortunately, I can't be at Wings over Pittsburgh because uh, my daughter's graduating from college that uh, weekend, but... Um, we'll catch up with you guys someday. Thanks. Ah, Jim. Well, that's much more important. And uh, we there's the other Captain Jeff, Captain Jeff Felmuth, also wishes that he were, were here. Yes, and we actually should say um, congratulations to his son. The reason Captain, the other Captain Jeff, Jeff Felmuth, is not here is because his son is graduating from college this weekend. Actually, only about 30 miles down the road, mm -hmm. summa cum laude. So summa cum laude. congratulations to your Very son, nice. Captain Jeff. 
So obviously, uh, his son gets his great uh, intellect from uh, Jeff's wife. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see, what else can we do here? Uh, what? Oh, you know, and thank you, Jim, for the nice, kind comments that you made about uh, Nick's uh, father. Nick, what do you think about that? I think if you hold on half a second, half a second. Nick? Uh, where are you? What happened to Nick? How would you respond to that, Nick? Yeah, so what, what did you think about uh, that, that uh, audio feedback from Jim? I, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was uh, giving you, uh, complimenting you uh, and your father and those great uh, interviews that you did with your, with your father and how much he appreciated it. Yeah, them. yeah, uh, it was great. I really appreciated it. Thank you very much indeed. All right. Um, let's see. How about this from Tanya? We're getting some more um, female uh, APGers, uh, you know, sending in feedback and all that kind of stuff. That's great. That's always good. Tanya says, uh, the feedback from Kevin on APG 270 about seeing a strange-looking contrail and wondering if it was perhaps generated by a secret aircraft was quite timely, as I just listened to an episode of the David Feldman show, where he had a comedian, Alonzo Baden, on who talked about his time building aircraft, the F-117 in particular. When he was actually involved with it, he was not able to reveal any de details about it or even its existence. He also mentions how they funded said aircraft without revealing the existence of it. Here is a link to a three-and-a-half-minute clip of the segment, Great Stuff. So, without permission, I'm going to play a three-and-a-half-minute clip of this podcast. Again, I'm promoting their podcast, and hopefully they'll see the wisdom in that. What do you mean you built airplanes? Because I, I know we've talked about this before. I, I literally built – you know, the, the main airplane I worked on was the original stealth fighter. Um, for your listeners, if they want to Google it, just Google F-117. You built and a stealth bomber? No, not the bomber, the fighter. The the fighter was used in For the surveillance, first Gulf right? War. No, it was it was a it was an attack plane, but it wasn't considered a bomber because it only could carry two missiles at a time or I think they could put four smaller ones, two big ones or four smaller ones. But the big thing about it, it was the first airplane that radar couldn't see. It could it could fly through a radar area, and I well, you're old enough to remember. Remember a movie called Firefox with Clint Eastwood? I'm going to pretend that I'm not old enough. Who's Clint Eastwood? <laughs> okay, let me refresh. There was a movie. It came out in the early '80s, and and the plot line was that Russia had invented this top secret airplane that you couldn't see it on radar and it was silent and it would project false images of itself and it had no heat trace or and it was basically an invisible airplane and and the idea was for Clint Eastwood to steal this airplane from the Russians so that the Americans could make the technology blah 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 right well when that movie came out we were actually building a plane that could do all of that and it was top secret and oh we're like can we tell anyone? Can we tell anyone that we actually know that? Like we make one of those? Wow. You know? And the uh, the cool thing, the full circle experience was around 98, 99, I was doing a show in Kuwait and I was at the base where they kept these planes because they used them, like I said, in the first uh, Iraq-Kuwait war. And when we got there and they're showing us the plane and I start talking about it and they're like, hey, wait a minute. 
how do you know all of this? And I was like, well, <laughs> kind of knew it before you did, young man. <laughs> so you came to work to make a stealth bomber or a stealth fighter. Could you find it every day? I mean, was it easy to spot? I'm sorry. That's a horrible... No, it, it's, it's an easy joke. It's I know, an easy I... joke. It's right there. Yes, we did find it. I, I will tell you, um, this is how secret that job was okay do you if again you're too young to remember this Thank but you. your older listeners will remember <laughs> big scandal about the six hundred dollar toilet seats and the thousand dollar hammers yeah and all of that well I remember that what that was that's how they and i learned this later that's how they finance secret projects right so you have this we were in like an assembly oh, line in a building. Wow, 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 wow. That's that amazing. All, That's amazing. Yeah, it's all sealed up. Like once we went to work, like you went into work and they closed the door and you couldn't leave until the end of the day. It wasn't like you could go in or out or anything like that. So what they did was they had an assembly line of a plane that the government knows about, that people know about, and you do a bunch of overcharges on that one to pay for the secret one that people don't know about. And that's how they, that's how they finance these projects. Well, that's how they used to finance these projects. Who knows what, uh, what's going on now, but yeah. Wow. So, so when they talked about a $600 toilet seat, it was like, well, actually it's an $8 toilet seat and $592 is going to finance the, you know, secret, uh, military project. So there you go. That was a little uh, three-and-a-half-minute snippet uh, from and David Feldman. Um, please don't come after me. I, I really like your show, and uh, that was a that was a great uh, clip from it. And uh, hopefully people listening to this show will subscribe to yours and grow your audience and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, that was uh, interesting stuff. I, I had no idea uh, that, uh, that that was the way they funded secret projects, but it makes a lot of sense. It certainly does, and certainly explains why some of those bits and bobs used to cost so much. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think uh, you want to wrap it up, uh, you think? Or you want to keep going? Whatever, you're more? the boss. Whatever you, oh, whatever you think. What do you reckon, guys? A little more? A little bit more, or stop it? One more feedback. One more. One more feedback. One more. Okay. Pick so, the best there, Jeff. We'll okay, wait, so we'll wait, we'll wait until it gets dark. Oh, okay. Right. Sun goes down at so one. So I'll, I'll let the uh, let this be an audience decision. Um, we can talk about uh, let's see, wind shear. We can talk about um, go arounds. Um, yeah, you can always go around. Um, what else do we have? Actually, we, have, we haven't had a green story this week, Jeff. Well, you know, we uh, even if we don't have a green story, we can always play this. We're going green. We're going green. We're gonna take care of the earth. We're going green. Okay, Rebecca um, sent in some feedback regarding lithium ion batteries, and all of a sudden, this is getting louder. I don't know why. <laughs> Okay, that's enough for that. Oh, I think I just crashed my soundboard. How about that? Good job. Good didn't job. want me to play that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so lithium ion batteries from Rebecca or oh uh, Steve, um, the, you know, the guy that does our um, how I got here uh, installments. Uh, he sent in um, a little uh, prom uh, promotional uh, feedback. Uh, for, he did a video re uh, regarding fuel planning. And uh, so what do you think? 
promo him. Okay, let's go. Steve says, what's the fuel? CRJ Diversion Fuel Planning, a shameless plug of a video I did a week ago on fuel planning. Sort of referenced to the CRJ, but the concept can apply to any airplane. I hope it can help someone making sense of diversion planning. You really need to watch the video of this. I could have played it out. Yeah, well, Matt now informs me that he could have played it out, if it, but, but how is anybody else going to see it? Yeah, I want the audience here, the live audience, to be able to see it. But let me uh, just play a little bit, just give you a little tease of uh, Steve's amazing video regarding fuel planning. And it really is a good video. You need to uh, watch it. The link will be in the show notes. And uh, here's just a little bit, a little, a little taste. Alrighty, quick little tutorial on alternate diversion fuel planning. So let's say we're flying into Chicago. So here's Michigan and here's Chicago. And here's our hold out along our route in, well, actually, here's Lake Michigan and Wisconsin, and Chicago's actually over there. But uh, anyway, okay, so flying into Chicago, here's Michigan, here's Lake Michigan. And okay, so because you're not seeing the video, you're really missing a lot of this. He he's, has a piece of paper, and he's drawing this stuff, and we're watching him draw this all out. It's kind of funny when he said, okay, no, no, Chicago's not there. And he scratches it out and then he just wads up the piece of paper and throws it away and starts off with another piece of paper. Anyways, uh, again, you really do need to watch the video to get the full impact of this, but I just wanted to play a little snippet of it. And since that was only a little snippet, uh, let's just play one more piece of feedback to get a little bit better or more of a discussion. And I think that in this, this discussion that uh, Rebecca sends in regarding lithium-ion batteries may take a little time because I think a lot of people are going to have some opinions about this, and we could talk about that for a while. Uh, so let's see. I don't know what to I say. I forgot what the other one was now, Ruby. Uh Oh, the go-arounds? The, uh, go -arounds? the go arounds looks like... Um, it's just an article. That's an article that I don't have... Um, downloaded yet so let's don't do that wind shear feedback how about that okay let's see hi i'm greg a coast guard helicopter pilot general aviation flyer and aviation geek who recently started listening to your awesome show i probably only have a dozen or so episodes under my belt but i love them all i didn't think that i would be interested in a three-hour podcast but i guess <laughs> a lot of people share that <laughs> But I guess the power of APG syndrome is just too contagious. You really have assembled a great crew to work with, and uh, they all add a nice touch of class to the show. I, want I don't to, know who he's talking about. I don't know either. <laughs> I want to personally thank Captain Nick for his plane tales. I can only imagine they take up a significant amount of his time, but they are really appreciated. I really enjoyed your, dis your discussion on wind shear during episode 266. I was recently reading IFR Magazine, the May 2017 ed edition, and they had a great article on landing handling wind shear, and they referenced FAA Circular 00-54 Pilot Wind Shear Guide. The uh, circular was created back in 1988, but it still contains a lot of great information for both private and professional pilots that is still applicable, minus the advent of wind shear detectors in modern aircraft. Had a quick question for all you. When you are lining up for takeoff with thunderstorms approaching, do you ever feel pressured to take off when your spidey sense is tingling that a possible wind shear is approaching? Or does your company's standard operating procedures have enough leeway for you to refuse to take off until after the storm passes? I was just curious, given the pressure of on-time arrivals and departures these days. 
Again, love the show. Please keep up the great work with the rest of the crew. And again, that was uh, from Greg. So thank you, Greg. Coast Guard helicopter pilot, GA pilot, and aviation geek. Um, good question. Um, I, I, you want me to start? Okay. Um, no? Who, who said that? Okay, get out of here. Uh, so, uh, yes, we are given uh, discretion. Um, yeah, you're right about that spidey sense. If you're thinking, you know what? It, everything kind of seems ominous. The the air is unstable. There is uh, definitely the potential for wind shear. I think I'm just going to wait. And we are at my airline given full authority. Uh, in fact, they expect us to make a decision and uh, you know to err on the side of safety. And if it means that the flight's going to arrive 15, 20, half an hour late, it doesn't matter. We can wait until the situation um, becomes better, and then we can take off. And what do they say? Uh, better to arrive uh, late in this world than early. Better in the late next. in this world than early yes. in the next. Thank you. I should write that down. <laughs> okay, that's what I have to say about that. Anybody else? I just think you know the corollary to that is. Or the opposite of that is true too. You know, there might be times where five miles isn't enough. You know, you you want to have more leeway than that. So, um, you know, you said sometimes it could be four miles off the end of the runway, and you'd have a safe, clear path around it. But other times that might not be true. So you have to analyze the entire weather picture that you're given. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think you can have hard and fast rules on that. And I think any airline that mandated that wouldn't be putting themselves in a good position. So. This is an interesting one because it doesn't just apply to wind shear. Uh, it applies to any approach where the conditions are right on your minima. It applies to any approach when you might be operating from a contaminated runway and the landing distance might be dubious or uh, your takeoff performance might not be easy uh, or particularly safe. And it's terribly hard when you're in a line of aircraft all of which are continuing and making approaches and landing successfully or taking off successfully to be the one pilot who goes, I don't think these conditions are safe for my operation, so I'm going to back out of the queue and, and not depart. That is a really, really tough decision. And any captain who makes it, I take my proverbial hat off to them because it's so easy to be dragged along by the queue and it might be, say, an approaching cell that is creeping closer and closer towards your departure path, but eventually somebody's going to have to not get airborne uh, or you'll fly straight into it. And being that one pilot who goes, oh, no, uh, I'm not flying, uh, I'm going to stand and wait for that cell to pass, takes uh, a brave, competent, and experienced captain because I bet you a bottom dollar – Everybody behind him will just breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that someone has eventually made a decision and not made them and not forced their hand to make that decision. So uh, it's it's never easy, and every captain has to kind of learn that thing on their own. But uh, when you get a pilot who is capable of making that decision and face down everyone else, even the young Joe's behind them who thinks he's being overcautious or his passengers who think he's unnecessarily delaying them, I, I think is a fine captain. And I think that's the sort of thing we always ought to follow. Captain Nick, um, when uh, that happens, you know, if you're in the big conga line in the Heathrow and somebody decides they're not going to go and they pull out, does oftentimes, since when one person pulls out, other people, because they're not the first, follow and choose to do that? Oh, yes. Almost definitely. 
It's, it's a matter of human nature. And you've got to be aware of the, the feeling of pressure. And you've got to be a big enough man to step away from that and go, I'm analyzing my situation. If I was on this airfield on my own with nothing else happening around me, would I want to get airborne right now? Or would I sit and wait for 10 minutes? And if your decision is to wait for 10 minutes, then you pull out of the queue. That's, that's and almost sad. always um, when that happens, then everybody else goes, hmm, that's probably a good idea. We'll do the same. And then everybody just waits. Yeah. I have two examples of people not waiting. Uh, one happened when I was a flight engineer in the 727 in Denver, and there was this hailstorm. I mean, it was making an amazing loud noise hitting the uh, fuselage of the aircraft and we were i don't know number five for takeoff and nobody united acme and other major airlines nobody was taking off and then up comes this younger pilot in a beach 1900 i forgot what airline it was and they go yeah we can go and the, the tower goes are, are you sure you want to go i mean the hail was like and we're all looking at each other like what are they are they you know, like crazy? Yeah, I guess so. So they took off, and then we're still all waiting because it's just uh, raining and hailing, and it's just awful weather. And then all of a sudden, we hear, uh, we see emergency vehicles kind of all, you know, gathering around us and going along the runway, and then we are all monitoring tower frequency, and we hear this guy coming in. And obviously, they were not having a good day because the hail storm that they flew through took out their windshield, broke the windshield, <laughs> You know, unpressurized, everything else. Of course, they probably didn't get very high or very far from the airport. And, uh, you know, we were all kind of just shaking our heads going, well, that was a really smart idea. The other case is one that happened in Atlanta. And I think it was Value Jet. It may have been Airtran. Uh, but I, I can't remember exactly which airline. But again, it was one of those days where, you know, wind shear warnings were in effect and severe weather was coming through and all of the Acme and other major airlines were going, nope, nope, that's okay. We'll, you know, we'll wait. And then this guy goes, yeah, we, we can go. We can we can take the departure. And again, we we kind of looked at each other like, are, are you serious? Mm -hmm. And you look at the radar, it was like solid red, solid red to the north. They take off, they turn to the north, and we're thinking, what, what is wrong with this person? Well, the same kind of thing happened. The, uh, they got into some hail, took out the windscreen, unpressurized. The, they landed, and the pilot was hailed as a hero. The passengers <laughs> were interviewed on television saying, oh, we have the best pilot in the world. He you know, brought the airplane back, and we almost died and everything else. And we're, we're all like yelling at the TV going, it was him that put you in that dire situation. He almost killed you. And uh, turns out that uh, after he got all the adulation and, uh, you know, the, the hero making, uh, the FAA kind of contacted him and said, oh, we'd like to ask you a few questions about your decision to do that. And uh, he had his, his certificate suspended for I don't know what period of time, but it was a very, very serious thing. And it was, he definitely endangered the lives of many, many people. So in the chat room, uh, they obviously understand about wind shear and strong winds. And all the chat room are in agreement that the expert on strong winds is Captain Al. <laughs> Badoom, bam. They, they obviously watched the show when you were in the kitchen studio with us. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it was Tony S, actually. Yeah, I, I'm probably the, you know, the world's leading wind generator, so I'll bring my <laughs> own source of, uh, of wind shear. Um, it's an interesting um, 
conversation and it does take quite a lot of strength of character to be the first person to decide that you're not going to take the departure and Nick I don't need your hat but I have done that at Barcelona and it's amazing how much of a chain reaction of it creates when people suddenly go I'm not going either I'm not going either but unfortunately someone does need to make that decision and usually it's the slightly more experienced guy because he goes well I've got nothing to prove here and um, fortunately, there are, you know, experienced guys out there who will potentially prevent someone from doing something that they don't want to do. It's not a lot you can do if someone's going to go and press on and ignore the, the majority decision or consensus. But um, I think sometimes you have to just be bold and brave. Sure. And I think it's, you know, it's a fluid and changing situation and environment, too, with the weather where it can be fine for one departure, the next departure, the one after that, and then all of a sudden reach a point and someone has to recognize when it's gotten to that point. So, and if you're just following blindly the person in front of you, what they're doing, you know. (laughs) They made it. They made it. We should make it too. It was fine for them. Well, it may not be the same conditions that you're taking That's a very big safety factor uh, that we have to encounter. Is it the same thing going in? Like, Captain Al, you uh, had a bad experience recently with uh, Gibraltar, and apparently that happens um, often there, where you decide, no, I'm not going to go, and then many other people say, no, I'm not going to either? Some of the airfields that uh, I operate to, um, including Gibraltar, are, I mean, Hong Kong Kai Tak is a, another one of those sort of airfields, I know that's closed down now, that has its own sort of unique uh, weather profiles. And, Steph, in that particular case, you're absolutely right. It's, it's an incredibly fluid situation. Um, the wind changes there. Uh, are quite significant um, and uh, on my own airline uh, it tends to be only the experienced skippers who get to go down there were, were specially chosen uh, not necessarily through being ability but just through experience um, because the decision making aspects of, of going to places where there are more challenging um, are a bit more involved but um, Gibraltar for those people who don't know is uh, as a relatively short runway uh, very close to a, a national border with a huge rock just to the south of it. So uh, any time that the wind isn't blowing straight down the runway, you can end up with some hideous wind effects. It's not uncommon to have a tailwind at each end of the runway, um, and wind shear kind of comes with the territory. Um, the airport um, is probably one of the few airports that in their Met observations actually will report uh, turbulence as in it's a forecast turbulence and at what level and what depth. Oh, and it also has a major highway that goes straight across the runway. So there are a few <laughs> operating challenges. But, yeah, I mean, the, the wind shear aspects, um, it's not uncommon to have uh, a difference of 50 knots uh, between oh, 1,000 feet and 300 feet. So in 700 feet, you've got 50 knot shear. Um, so sometimes you've just got to kind of drive your way through it because, you know, at the lower levels, the, the wind's actually relatively stable. I mean, it still might be blowing sort of 40 or 50 knots. Um, but, yeah, I mean, sometimes it, it is a case of that, you know, the weather guards are not in your favor and you, you have to throw the approaches away. And, um, you know, been quite a few occasions where I've had to do, um, well, the three forms of wind shear go around. The, the one where the aeroplane has predicted the wind shear, um, the one where the aeroplane has detected the wind shear, or the very reliable one of, I don't like the wind shear, so I don't care what the technology is saying, we're out of here. Um, but they're the right decisions. Um, but, yeah, Gibraltar is operationally challenging for a multitude of reasons. Excellent. 
excellent discussion. And uh, thank you again, Greg, for sending in your feedback and uh, asking the question about uh, wind shear and uh, discretion of pilots. With that, I think we all warm up, go inside, and uh, I'm talking to uh, the live audience here. I know I'm chill uh, chilled, cold. So I think that uh, this will be a good time to end the show. So thank you again, everybody, our live audience, for joining us here today. That's been awesome. Thank You've been you. great. And if you want to learn more about the show, for those of you listening uh, who have downloaded this, uh, please head over to the AirlinePilotGuide.com website. There you'll find information about the crew, the community, different ways to listen, watch the podcast, uh, the APG store, uh, the coffee fund, all that jazz there and more at airlinepilotguide.com we have some social media social uh, media twitter is a great place to find us we're all together at apg crew you can interact with us all together there find our individual contact information on twitter pinned to the top of the page you can find us on facebook facebook.com slash airline pilot guy and then on slack we actually have in-person slack information today from the man himself apg listeners if you want to join the slack team send me a tweet to hi11e1 say something about apg and slack and i'll send you an invitation on slack we discuss the events like this event and other stuff that's going on and if you really don't like searching through twitter for all of our tweets put it on slack and we can find it a lot better and i'm going to take your advice thank you hillel <laughs> Uh, let's see. I guess that's about it. We, we have um, more APG stuff and uh, airplane geek stuff and plane talking UK stuff tomorrow. If you happen to be in the Pittsburgh area, of course, you won't be hearing the show until after that. So never mind. So we're, uh, we're, <laughs> we're going to have a great time here this weekend uh, and uh, looking forward to the air show tomorrow and Sunday. And uh, the best part of all of this, of course, is just being together with the community on uh, this AvGeek community, which is just awesome. Again, thank you to all of our live audience. And I think Barb wants to say one more thing. For camera. Oh, Where's she needs a camera, camera too. Wow. Okay. Well, she's really getting into this uh, <laughs> celebrity. Thank you, Captain Nick. He gave me a Boeing 747. Yeah. Especially for me. I, I'd do anything to get rid of a Boeing. <laughs> You've always got an answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very well. And apparently Al got a catering van. Yes, he has. You never know when Al will need an extra snack. <laughs> so with that... I guess uh, we so should just feedback, uh, feedback from the chat room just before we close up, yeah. Jeff. There's been uh, everyone's absolutely loved the live stream you've done this afternoon. Um, Lane Street, Tony S, Ivan McDonald, scrolling uh, through the list, uh, Mariana as well. Uh, they've all said fantastic show, great work, guys. Well done. Well, again, we couldn't do it without all of all of you great people out there listening and contributing, and uh, it's just uh, we're all in this together, and that's what makes it great. And so, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and talons, Douglas. <laughs> Take care, y'all. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. It's been a great day. Thanks very much. Yay! Good day. W-A-P-G